show. The phones are open, as always. You can bring up anything you want, although right now we are going to reserve calls only for our guests here that we will have with us for the first hour of the show, because I expect we'll be easily able to talk to this guest for an entire hour. His name is Dana Larson. Uh, the phone number is 603-283-6160. Dana is a fairly well-known, uh, let's call him a drug freedom activist. I'm not sure if that's how he would describe himself, but uh, up in uh, Vancouver, that's in the western side of Canada, uh, where there's been a lot of kind of historic drug freedom activism that has gone on. By the way, in the studio here tonight, it is Ian. And Chris. Uh, we talked to the Prince of Pot many years ago, Mark Emery, and that was before the federal government here in the United States put him in prison for five years for the dastardly crime of selling seeds over the Internet. And Dana, when I was looking into uh, some of your background, I discovered you used to work with Mark over at Cannabis Culture back in the day. Is that right? Uh, yeah, Mark and I worked together for quite a few years and did a lot of good projects together. So you've had a long history of doing, let's say, drug freedom activism there in Canada. What got you started? Uh, I've been doing this stuff over 30 years now. Uh, I got started in high school, actually. I started smoking pot in grade 11 and grade 12, and I've always been very politically minded. So for a year or two, I would send letters to all of the Canadian uh, members of parliament about drug policy and keep all their answers in a special binder that I had when I was like 19 and... uh, Hmm. When I got to university, I started a club on drug policy and spent four years there doing things. And uh, shortly after I graduated, I met Mark and started working together on something that became Cannabis Culture Magazine. But uh, I got started because I thought this was the mo- one of the most important issues out there. Nobody was really talking about it very much at the time in the late 80s and early 90s. And um, so I've taken it on as a life path. We got marijuana legalized in Canada, and now we're working on ending the whole war on drugs, which is a pretty big effort. Yeah, I think I'd come across you at some point, you know, within the last few years, started following you on social media. And then last year, I saw you post something about opening up a mushroom dispensary in Vancouver, but not just mushrooms over time. You ended up adding uh, LSD, DMT, and a, a coca leaf tea i mean you've got all kinds of interesting things that you're making available to the public basically anybody that walks in and joins as a member of this dispensary this is something that you you started doing back when cannabis was illegal as well in canada with this sort of idea of kind of putting uh putting it out there even though it was still technically illegal Still something you could be arrested for, but just going right out and renting a a place, and I presume, unless you own the building, and just opening up your doors and letting people come in and and buy things that the government says you shouldn't be able to buy. So this goes back a ways, right, to to the cannabis legalization days, right, This, this sort of tactic? Yeah, yeah. About 15 years ago, I opened Vancouver's third cannabis dispensary. There'd been uh, two others, but they had been very sort of quiet. They'd been open for about 10 years at that time, but they were very quiet about what they were doing, just trying to help people access cannabis. We had some favorable court decisions in Canada at the time around medical use. So we had patients who were legally allowed to use cannabis, but nowhere to access it, which allowed dispensaries to fill in. 
But what I that was a bit different was we very actively taught others how to open their own dispensaries. So I was very public about what we were doing, and we had dozens of people come through, and we would show them everything we were doing about how to open their own place and encourage them to open their own. And as a result, many others opened uh, in Vancouver and ultimately across Canada. And I really don't think we would have gotten to legalization had there not been hundreds and hundreds of stores all across the country already selling medicinal and social marijuana to people. Uh, sometimes they'd get arrested. Sometimes they'd have police problems. Sometimes not, depending on the city and the mm-hmm. jurisdiction and a lot of other factors. But the, the courts, luckily, in Canada were not willing to put people in jail for very long sentences for selling medicinal cannabis. So it was a lot of work for the police to raid somebody. They'd reopen again the next day. The courts wouldn't punish them very much. That's a perfect formula for mass civil disobedience, which is what we had. And uh, although there's still flaws with how legalization was brought out in Canada for marijuana, I'm trying to use these same tactics now on psychedelics. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, we're going to be expanding to stimulants and opioids and try to create our own safe supply for all these substances in Vancouver and hopefully across Canada. When you say the courts weren't willing to really dish out any serious punishments, does that mean Canadian juries weren't willing to convict or... Did these not go to jury trials? Like, I'm not real familiar with the the court system in Canada. You know, you mentioned Mark Emery earlier, and Mark was selling seeds to Americans by mail order all around the world, actually. But America was the only country that wanted to extradite him. Well, under Canadian law, he should have been charged in Canada with exporting seeds, not sent to a foreign country, which he wasn't in, to, to face a crime there. Right. But in Canada, the courts would have only given them a very, they wouldn't have given them five years in jail for selling marijuana seeds. They would have given them a big fine and maybe a short jail sentence. So we basically outsourced our justice system to the U.S. Yeah, because it was crazy. They didn't feel, and that's how it's been on a lot of other things too. You know, our courts, cannabis, uh, selling cannabis was against the law, just like I'm breaking the law now selling mushrooms and LSD to people. But, I, but the Canadian courts and our precedents that we have, we have the same precedents now around psychedelics and, and psilocybin Patients are going to the court saying, look, I need this medicine. I've been traumatized. I'm a, I'm a veteran. I suffered abuse. Something's happened to me. I need these 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 products to help me uh, live a proper life, and I can't get them legally, and the courts have been sympathetic. Wow. And that creates kind of an opening for us where they say, yeah, you're allowed to have psilocybin. Okay, well, where do I get it? How am I supposed to buy it? Where do, I can't necessarily – don't know how to grow it myself. Right. So having stores like ours kind of creates that opening. Um, and I think also being in Vancouver – we have a city that is very uh, pro-drug uh, policy reform. Mm-hmm. Our police, unlike a lot of the police in Canada, we have our own police force in our city. And so although you know our Vancouver police aren't perfect, they are more responsive to drug policy issues. They are more responsive to the fact that people in Vancouver typically don't want to see stores like mine get shut down. And so they're aware of that. And I think that also helps us to be able to stay open. Uh, jury trials, I presume, are a thing there? In Canada, yeah, we have juries and yeah. jury trials, and that it depends on the case and everything else. But yeah, we have our legal system is not that different than the U.S. So there's a chance then that the Vancouver police they know who you are. I mean, you've been in that town for a long time, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So they know if they they know if they mess with Dana Larson, you're going to go. You're taking it to trial. You're going to go and you're going to demand a jury, and that jury might actually go go in your favor. So it might just be a total waste of their time, and that might actually leave them with some egg on their face. Well, we have had, I mean, with cannabis, we certainly had many cases where the police would go after people in different cities across the country, and often we would win in court and and Mm -hmm. set some positive constitutional precedences, and some of our major cases went to the Supreme Court. We didn't win every time, but certainly we won a lot when it came to medical cannabis. Uh, We won a lot when it came to a lot of these other aspects of these drug laws, and we're winning now, you know, other, other aspects. The supervised injection site in Vancouver was under threat. 
uh, of being shut down quite a few years ago. And the courts also supported its existence, said it should be there and forced the government to keep it open. Uh, so, you know, we've got a, a good uh, a charter of rights in Canada and a good system that's relatively kind of new. We only really got our charter of rights in the 1980s. And so a lot of this is still being dealt with in the courts mm-hmm. over the years. And uh, that's really that charter really helped us a lot in a lot of these cases. Over the years, as you've been doing this kind of uh, open air activism uh, of just offering things for sale that they say you're not allowed to sell, um, have you been arrested a few times? Have you spent some time behind bars? You know, I've only ever been arrested for my cannabis activism once. Huh. And that was actually not in Vancouver. I, I was giving away free cannabis seeds. I had access to millions of, of cannabis seeds. And I did a thing <laughs> called Overgrow Canada, where I was going from city to city, giving a talk about the history of cannabis in Canada, then giving away seeds. Mm-hmm. And I did 23 cities uh, across the country. And on the second stop in Calgary, uh, the police came in. They arrested one of our volunteers. There was actually a woman in Vancouver who is very against what I do. And she was calling all of our venues saying, Dana's going to sell marijuana seeds and that's or giving away marijuana seeds. And that's illegal. And some of them kicked us out of the venue. We had to get new venues. <clears throat> but in Calgary, the police showed up. They arrested one of our volunteers. He was going back to our truck to get more seeds and they grabbed him. So I came out with like, there was like a couple of hundred people there for my talk. It was actually a great story. It actually worked out really well. Often being arrested can work out really well, depending on the circumstances. So I went out there and I said to the, there was a lot of police there. They'd taken this one guy in a truck. And I said, have you arrested somebody here? They said, yeah. I said, well, you should arrest me. It's my event. You can't Mm. be arresting my volunteers and not arrest me. I'm the one giving away marijuana seeds. The officer said, well, I don't really want to arrest you. And I said, oh, well, you're gonna. (laughs) And so I had somebody in the crowd give me some cannabis seeds and people stuck out their hands. I put cannabis seeds in people's hands. I said, look, there's (laughs) cannabis seeds in my hand. I just gave seeds to those guys. He said, all right, you're under arrest. But he didn't even, he just walked me across this. It was perfect. It was a huge park parking area. He walks me across the whole parking area with my seeds in my hand, eight cops all around me. The crowd's all yelling, shame, shame, shame. Media frenzy. They take me away. It's a longer story, but they take sure. me away for the night. The next day I get out, uh, uh, everybody's happy to see me. It, it, and because of all the publicity, I was hoping to give away one million seeds in the first year. <laughs> And I wasn't sure if I'd get enough attention to do that. But because of that arrest, I was trending on, on Twitter. Right. I was the big, it was national, international media. I was able to give away 2 million seeds that wow. first year because of that. No other city did the police show up to arrest me. So, so they also, helped you. They helped you out yeah, inadvertently. It's, it's almost, it's almost unfortunate, it sounds like, that uh, they didn't arrest you elsewhere. Right. Well, if I've been arrested too many times, like when you're on bail and you get arrest, arrested again after you're on things. bail, yeah. Yeah. that's yeah. when it gets serious. So I was yeah. worried about that. But every city, the media would ask the police, are you going to arrest Dana? And they'd say, well, we got bigger fish to fry. Mm. We, have, we got our eye on it. But it got me so much media. And actually, the next yep. year, I did the tour again. And my lawyer said, you can do the tour, but don't go back to Calgary. You're still on bail in Calgary. We haven't had your trial yet. And I was like, okay, I won't go. But I really wanted to go. So I decided to add Calgary last stop to my tour. I go back to Calgary, media frenzy. Are the police going to arrest them? What's going to happen? Two cops show up to the event. Now the event's ready. They go, if they try to arrest Dana, we're going to link arms around them. We're going we're gonna to lay down in front of the police cars. <laughs> so the police go, oh, forget this. They just said, hey, have a good talk. They yeah. just left. So we made the police stand down. A great That's victory. Nice. And when it came to trial, ultimately the charges were all dropped. They took too long to get to trial. So it got dropped because of that. No one wanted to deal with it. But, wow. uh, but yeah, often if you don't get totally shut down, Often a police arrest or a police raid can actually be very helpful in terms of getting public opinion on your side, in terms of getting you media attention and awareness. 
if, if the police end up, you know, you go to jail for a long time at the end, that's not good. But if it's a case like that, where one night in jail, that was one of the best nights in my life, spend the night in jail. It worked out really well. <laughs> That's a great story. It, it reminds me of years ago, you guys actually at Cannabis Culture reported on some of the uh, the 420s that were happening here in Keene, New Hampshire. Uh, you guys did a really lengthy report on that. And I was hoping our, our friend Rich Paul, uh, a.k.a. Nobody, changed his name legally to Nobody to run for governor here in New Hampshire a couple of years ago. I was hoping he would be here. Normally he's here with us on Friday nights. He was the guy who was leading the uh, activism here in Keene with those 420s that were happening and a similar story that the police had come in uh there was probably a hundred plus people in this little park in C- central square in Keene. Keene's like a 20,000 25,000 population town so 100 people in the park's a big deal and uh and he was you know they were smoking up the cops came in they arrested a, you know rich and they arrested another guy and they thought that they they were going to intimidate their way into shutting down these daily 420s that were uh, were happening <laughs> and then what happened was 50 people from the park marched down to the police station and proceeded to sit in a, a big circle out behind the police station and just light up a bunch of joints and pass them around uh as they were waiting for rich to get processed out the next day the cops came back made two more arrests and the activists went to the police department again, this time going inside the police department, <laughs> proceeding to smoke cannabis in the police station lobby. The police did absolutely nothing uh, about that. It made for some really awesome video to see people uh, smoking up inside the police station. And then after that, they didn't come back again. I, I wasn't here for that, but that has that it. is absolutely yeah. the best story, I think, out of Keene. It you was know, one hands of the best. down, yeah, one definitely of the one of the best. Great example. There's, there's of a how, lot of stories too. So. Yeah, of how an arrest can backfire on the police and actually give you a, an even stronger position, as long as people are willing to continue to to make a stand. And that is what you've been doing here over the years uh, in in Vancouver, Dana. Is you, you're you're standing up for uh, drug freedoms and getting people an ability to actually purchase drugs that they need safely, because as we know with the black market you really don't know what you're going to get. I mean, thankfully, thanks to folks like Ross Ulbricht, who sadly is spending you know two life sentences plus 40 years in prison here in the, in the United States for creating these online drug markets, we've certainly seen a lot of harm reduction in the area of being able to access drugs and actually get what you're expecting to buy. Because the, classically on the streets, you don't know what you're going to get. You know, you think you're going to get MDMA, it turns out to be something completely different, something potentially dangerous, and if you're just buying from some shady guy in a club, you have no idea. And and there's, you know, it, besides just you're the, the person selling it, you're also offering a service to people uh, to test drugs. And I want to hear a little bit about that service. When did that start uh, and what inspired that? So in 2019, we decided to launch a program called Get Your Drugs Tested. And we, we bought one of these FTIR machines. It's basically the size of a bread box. It's got a hammer and a little infrared laser. That laser shines down on a very tiny sample of any drug or really any kind of substance. And then it analyzes the light spectrum that comes out, and you can tell what's in there. There's limitations to it, but mm-hmm. it's really effective. It only takes about 10 minutes to run a test, and you can find out what's in your drugs. And so we bought one of these machines. We were going to set up. We weren't sure where to set up our operation. Uh, the government solved that for us by getting a court order to shut down one of our cannabis dispensaries that had been open for 10 years. So instead of abandoning the location, we reopened it the next day as the Get Your Drugs Tested Center. That was in 2019. <laughs> so it's been uh, you know, four years now. 
We've become the world's busiest place to come in and get any street drug analyzed for free. We don't charge anything. It's entirely subsidized by marijuana and now mushroom sales. We probably spent over a million dollars on this operation since we began. We're approaching our 50,000th sample tested. Uh, We make all of our uh, data uh, available on our website in a free uh, online searchable database at Mm getyourdrugstested.com. So you can go there and and search, you know, all the MDMA results or all the cocaine or all the, you can narrow it down quite, quite a bit. Uh, We test certainly all kinds of things. We can't test like her. We can't tell you how much THC is in your marijuana or something, but, you know, we analyze chemical drugs. We can detect fentanyl, benzodiazepines, cuts, potency, that kind of thing. And uh, I'm very proud of this. It's been a lot of work and a lot of effort. Uh, but we are, yeah, we're now the busiest place in the world doing this. And I think it's very important. Really, I want to, I want to go out of business. I don't want us to be needed anymore. People should have their drugs tested before they buy them. So they have an accurate label on them saying what's in it, Mm. a label they can trust. But I think we're creating a new level of accountability in the drug market in Vancouver, because you can't always go back to your dealer, but a lot of times you can go back to your dealer and go, look, you told me this was this really, it turned out to be this. And that happens a lot. And often dealers are coming in. They don't know what they're selling. They're buying stuff in large quantities from somebody else. They don't always know exactly Mm -hmm. what it is. People come in sometimes test 20 samples. You know, they're either a really dedicated hobbyist or they're a a (laughs) provider. And they think that's great. Yeah. Supply uh, supply uh, chains are a challenge to, you know, you know, make sure you're getting the same thing consistently and reliably, especially when you're sourcing stuff, you know, from overseas. And I don't I'm not in the drug business, but I, I understand it from an electronics perspective. So. It is a, it is a challenge, right? Without and you can't if you're a drug dealer, you don't really want to go to an authority and go, "Hey, can I test all these samples? I'm going to be selling them to people." Obviously, you want discretion, so it makes it very hard all the way around. Mm. So we're we're very busy. We've been getting busier every day since we opened, and uh, we're doing over a thousand. You know, we're doing well over a thousand tests a month now. We have wow. four of these machines. It's it's we have a location. We're we're about to get a, a mobile lab set up, a truck we're retrofitting so we can drive around and go to events, go to concerts, things like that. Yeah, that's a great idea. And we also take samples by mail too, not just, not just in person, right? So from all across Canada and really anywhere in the world, we don't advocate Mm. other countries to send us stuff because we don't want anyone else to get in trouble. But if it arrives in our mailbox, we will test it and email you or text you back the results. And that mailbox has my name on it. You're sending your samples to Dana Larson, Box, whatever. (laughs) That's awesome. So I, I think I've received... More, I think more people have sent me drugs than anybody else in the world ever. Because I don't think anybody else has received thousands and thousands of people sending them little samples of drugs in the mail like I have. So I, I've been trying to get Guinness records in on this, but for some reason they're not taking my calls. But uh, Here in the United the most, States, most- uh, and I believe in Europe, there's the folks, of, I'm sure you, you're familiar with Arrowhead.org. They're yeah. involved with uh, drugsdata.org, used to be ecstasydata.org, and that is... Uh, a pay per testing, so you pay, you know, forty or fifty bucks. It might even be up to a hundred now with inflation. But uh, you know, it's you got to send cash along with uh, the drug sample. You don't get it back, obviously, and it's it's all done anonymously when they they do it there. But it's done at something called Drug Detection Labs. They can't tell you what the percentages uh, of are of like, let's say you you send in an MDMA sample. And they they can tell you, yes, it's real MDMA, or yeah, it's MDMA, but it also has this, or it has these other things that doesn't have any MDMA. So they'll tell you what's in it, but there's like a DEA restriction here on actually giving the the percentage breakdown or the the amount of milligrams or whatever. So you really don't know exactly, you know, if it's 50-50 or whatever, you really can't tell. 
I wonder what the restrictions are. Like, like what's the logic on that? It's it's some DEA restriction on the lab. They're just not allowed to. They can get that information. Yeah. They just can't. They can't share it. Huh. Does this machine that you guys have give you an actual like breakdown of what is in this sample? You get a percentage. There are limitations. So mm-hmm. if, if it's under like, around 5% of the sample, it's hard to pick up. So we also use test strips for things like fentanyl. Because fentanyl might be under 5% of the sample, but still hmm. at a level that can cause harm. So we'll use test strips as well for benzos, for fentanyl, to see if it's in there too. We can give a percentage, but it's normally a range. We can't mm-hmm. necessarily give an exact one, but we'll say, well, this is about 40 to 50% MDMA, 20 to 30% filler or whatever. Right. We can give those kind of ranges, right? Okay, but it's hard cool. to give it a very precise number, but we can give enough to make help the user make an informed decision. Right. And often, you know, we they have, often we find out it's not the drug they thought. They might think it's MDMA. It's really MDA. Mm-hmm. Those are often sold interchangeably, even though they're kind of totally similar, different. but they're also quite different in yeah. a lot of ways too. And, yeah. and so we get a lot of that. Sometimes it's a matter of life and death. Other times it's just a matter of it's not quite what you thought it was or it's been cut. It's been cut with something harmful sometimes that won't necessarily kill you right away, but it's not good for you to be ingesting on a regular basis, right? So right. with those kind of issues as well. Uh, so all those things are things that we that we look at and try to provide knowledge for people so they know what they're taking. Yeah, it sounds like a really useful service, especially since you're doing it for free, because that's you know that's one of the big uh, I would say problems with the what we have here in the United States. You know, the average person probably doesn't even know. Uh, that a service like this exists, the average drug user probably has no idea. And then if they were to say, "Oh yeah, you got to pay forty bucks or a hundred dollars just to to sample your product that you only bought fifty dollars worth of in the first place," most people aren't going to be able uh, to justify the cost. So I, I suspect there's a significant number of people who are just declining to do this simply because of the cost issue. Uh, obviously, you're taking donations uh, from people that want to help with this particular project. It's getyourdrugstested.com. Seems like a really, really great harm reduction program you've got going on there, Dana. Yeah, we do get some donations. I mean, they probably come to less than 5% of our operating budget, yeah. right? But we certainly take them. And if anybody out there's listening has got an extra million dollars yeah, or sure. some significant amount of money they want to kick in, we would love to get access to that. You know, we're working on getting a, this mobile lab going, and it's quite expensive, right? Yeah, so we spend a lot of on it, and uh, but I think it's very much worth it. And trying to set an example for our governments to take this on, right? If they're not going to provide a safe drug supply themselves, at least offer us some free testing so we can get this happening. Yeah, I don't want the I don't want the government in charge of drugs. I mean, it's bad right now. It would probably make it even worse. Uh, hang on, Dana. Stick with us here. We're going to continue this discussion here in moments. We're going to talk more about the mushroom dispensary. We kind of mentioned it earlier, but I want to get into how that's going because it's pretty new. More coming up. Free Talk Live is brought to you by Dash Digital Cash. Dash is the cryptocurrency designed to be used for spending. In addition to being one of the world's first cryptocurrencies, Dash was the first crypto project to have a decentralized autonomous organization that to this day continues to improve and promote Dash. Every month, 10% of the mining rewards go into a treasury. Anyone with one Dash to spend can put forward a proposal to the Dash masternodes to vote on. The masternodes vet the proposals and decide which ones move forward and are funded by the Treasury. In fact, that's exactly how we got this sponsorship. Nowadays, DAOs are plentiful, but Dash paved the way by doing it first, nearly a decade ago. Dash is one of the oldest cryptocurrencies and is widely available on exchanges and in multi-crypto wallets. It's easy to get and use Dash. Start by learning more at Dash.org. Thanks to the Dash DAO for sending us 32 Dash per month to promote Dash on the air. Visit Dash.org to learn about Dash. Dash.org.
We are back with more Free Talk Live. You can join the show here if you've got a question for Dana Larson, drug freedom activist in Vancouver, Canada. He's with us. The number here is 603-283-6160. That's 603-283-6160. Free Talk Live, and this hour of the show is brought to you by Dash. It's digital cash. Dash is the cryptocurrency designed to be used for spending. And in addition to being one of the world's first cryptocurrencies, Dash was one of the first, or rather, the first, to have a decentralized autonomous organization that to this day continues to improve and promote Dash. Uh, In fact, every month, 10% of the mining rewards from the Dash miners goes into a treasury. And then anyone who has a whole Dash, which is right now like 40 or 50 bucks, somewhere in that range, uh, can put forward a proposal for the Dash masternodes to vote on. So the masternodes vote. uh, They vet the proposals. They discuss them. They decide whether or not to move forward with them. And then if they they do, then that proposal gets funded. In fact, that's how we got this sponsorship from Dash. And nowadays, DAOs are plentiful. You hear about them. If you're in the crypto space, you know about DAOs. They're, they're huge. Uh, but Dash did it first, nearly a decade ago. Dash is one of the oldest cryptos. It is widely available on exchanges and in multi-crypto wallets. It's easy to get and use Dash. You can start by learning more at Dash.org. And thanks to the Dash Decentralized Autonomous Organization for sending us 32 Dash per month to promote Dash on the air. You can visit Dash.org and learn about Dash. That is Dash. Org. Dana Larson is with us here from uh, Vancouver, where we're discussing some of his projects that he's into these days. He's a longtime drug freedom activist there in Canada, uh, having opened up some cannabis dispensaries back in the day before they were even legal, and now doing the same thing with mushrooms and inevitably now also some other psychedelics, which I want to talk about in a moment. But we were just discussing GetYourDrugsTested.com, which is... The preeminent drug testing space in Canada, maybe even one of the most popular in the world, you were saying you guys are processing a thousand samples every month uh, at just this one location. It's 30 something samples per day. So you guys are definitely busy. I was looking at the website where you have the test results and, of course, you list what did the person think they were buying? What did they actually uh, end up buying? This is a huge Harm reduction project, you may have saved lives here, Dana. It's a very nice uh, thing that you're doing. And as you said, this is being funded through the profits that are being made at the, you know, your store locations, right? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. We, we Originally, it was all funded by our cannabis sales. And now that our mushroom dispensary is getting busier and generating revenue, we're kicking in from there as well. But uh, I don't think anybody else is doing anything like this in the world. We're actually up to around 1,200 tests a month now. It's getting quite busy uh and like i said we're almost at our 50,000th one tested but yeah it's entirely funded by by cannabis mushrooms and a little bit of public support but no money from the government at all about what percentage of the testing every day is coming in through the mail versus walk-ins just curious uh, the mail is probably around 10 percent 15 percent of the total wow. they've both gone up quite a bit if you look at the chart what since we started it's quite a significant upward curve yeah. on both of them uh and uh and i think there's more potential for the mail in some ways but absolutely it's uh they're both they're both quite busy but the mail's around 10 15 percent you know it, although it's free you've still got to pay to send it in obviously sure. we get the test result back to you the same day we get the sample but you've got to wait for the mail to arrive most right. folks that are getting a drug tested are and planning on taking that drug fairly soon after getting their test <laughs> results. Right? But, uh, 
but certainly, you know, the mail, we can reach a lot of places in Canada uh, where they often have less options on who to buy their drugs from. Also, in a real small town or up in the north, a lot less options out there to access. And certainly getting it tested is very difficult. Now, you said people wait around for the results. Do they get the drug back or uh, is it consumed? Yeah, if you want. If you, if you want it back, <laughs> we only require a tiny little, you know, very small head mm-hmm. of a pin kind of sample. But we absolutely do give it back to you if you want it back. Wow. Uh, that's not a problem at all. And we do return quite a few of them. We don't return them by mail, obviously. Sure. But if you're there in person, it only takes about 10 minutes to do the test. It's amazing. Sometimes there's a lineup. So you might have to wait longer because we're, we're trying to get those done out of the way. So if it's a long wait, we're happy to text you, mm-hmm. call you, email you or we can give you the results in person on a piece of paper, whatever you like. Incredible. I, I love how you're you're kind of creating a free market solution to authenticity uh, of, of the products that you're buying as opposed to, you know, government doing it through some sort of licensing uh, model. I mean, if you had a government well, doing it, it would take you a free three market, months. But we're not, if it was, it was a real free market thing, we'd be making a profit at it, right? And we're not making a profit. So it's more of a charitable action from our, from our, our, our service. But I mean, yeah, okay, the, government, fair enough. the government in BC does offer drug testing. They offer it as well as a service. The province does. They've just been gearing it up. They have about four times as many machines that we have. And they do about one third of all the tests in the province are now done by the government. Two thirds are being done by us with a quarter of the, re- of the, of the machines and a tiny fraction of the resources. When the government does drug testing in Canada, it's usually more for academics to be able to judge the trends and write reports about what's happening. Mm-hmm. It's not really geared for drug users yeah. so much. And this is about like getting a sample so they can do some kind of academic thing. And for me, it's not about ap- academics. It's about drug users being able to know what they're getting. Right. And survive it. Uh, you know, getting some bad stuff, not taking the bad stuff. Yeah. This is a huge uh, harm reduction thing. And I suspect the government's not going to give you a 10 minute turnaround either. You send it in. The no, they, actually, a lot of them, they'll pick it up on Thursdays. You get your results back on a Saturday. If you drop it off on a Monday, it could be a five-day yeah. wait yeah. to get your results back. And so, yeah, they're not as busy. The people working there like would like to do more. So we actually also provide the training. You, to, to learn how to use one of these machines, you've got to spend a fair amount of time shadowing somebody else. Mm-hmm. And because we're the only place busy enough, we're, we're providing the training for people who ultimately go on to work for the government lab because if they try to train on the government machines they're not doing enough tests it takes them forever to get their hours in so we're actually in a way subsidizing the government's efforts on our end so you opened up a mushroom dispensary what a couple years ago when did that uh, get started yeah well we about three years now Mm -hmm. um we we opened it originally as a coca leaf cafe then we brought in mushrooms a little later and then we added lsd and dmt and other psychedelics we sell peyote as well uh, we also sell a herb called Kratom, which you're probably familiar with, I would imagine. Yeah. But uh, Kratom is, is kind of an illegal gray area in Canada, but it's really useful for those who are want to substitute for opiates. Right. Um, so we're the only place in the world that – we're not the only mushroom shop, but we're the only place in the world you can walk in the door and buy mushrooms, LSD, and DMT. We're also the only place in the world, including South America, that's really focused on like coca leaf, being able to go in and buy coca leaf and – We've developed a lot of coca tea drinks, uh, kind of making coca like espresso. So we make like a really potent coca extract kind of called coca brew. And then we mm-hmm. use shots of that to make various drinks. So you can get a coca chino or a sparkling coca soda or any of these kind awesome. of things. And, um, you know, it's a challenge. In fact, the coca, although although the mushrooms and the psychedelics are the biggest part of our business, the coca is the hardest part because unlike those things, no, we don't grow coca in Canada. I've got mm-hmm. to import smuggled coca leaves and coca flour <laughs> in from South America. And obviously, I, all the time I think if I was smuggling cocaine, this would be way easier. 
but the mm-hmm. leaves are bulky and that's, you know, but no one else is really bringing it in, but we're able to make coca tea and provide coca leaf to chew. And, awesome. and for me, a lot of this is about, I mean, I believe cocaine and, and synthetic should be legalized, but I also really think a lot of it's about plant medicines and that at their root, these things are originally uh, uh, plant medicines that really should, we should be returning to that kind of mode of use where you get the greatest benefit and the least risks. Uh, and so, you know, coca leaf, opium poppies, cannabis flowers, peyote cactus, psilocybin mushrooms. These are all plants or plants and fungi that have millennia of social, cultural, medicinal, spiritual use and really should be reintroduced in those forms. And like I said, I think I think all forms should be legal, but users will tend to go towards the milder forms when given the option. You know, when now that cannabis is becoming more legal and available, what's the biggest growth area? CBD. Mm-hmm. Now that psychedelics are becoming more available, what's the biggest growth area? Microdosing. Mm-hmm. You know, if point. we legalize cocaine tomorrow, the big money would not be in selling cocaine powder any more than the big money in caffeine is in selling caffeine powder. The big money in cocaine would be coca-based drinks, putting the cocaine back in Coca-Cola, making alternatives mm-hmm. to coffee. That would become the number one form of coca ingestion in the world. Yeah. Uh, snorting cocaine would be about as popular as snorting caffeine if we... <laughs> put them both on the same playing field that's a really excellent point you know uh drug criminalization prohibition as we've seen over the years drives people to use the harder drugs it drives the manufacturers the the people willing to take the risk of selling those drugs to the harder stuff because you know if you only have so much space to move something across the border in a truck or whatever you want to move the stuff that's the most valuable you want to use you know you want to move the highest potency product and so that's that as a result that's what gets pushed you know, i think it's a really great observation that given a legal status given when people aren't afraid of going to prison uh they're going to actually move towards the lower intensity use i think it's a great point uh so you introduced mushrooms at a dispensary a few years ago and I, it was just last late last year right that you decided to add lsd dmt and uh what was the other there's a third one right What's the other thing you, you popped uh, LSD, in? we saw DMT, uh, mushrooms. mushrooms. I feel like there was uh, one cra- more. Coca, Kratom, okay. op- 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 poppy, uh, op- uh, I mean, uh, uh, peyote cactus. Peyote, We sell okay. that as well. We sell dried and, and live peyote. So that's Sometimes stuff- I forget all the things we sell. It's a yeah. pretty long it's list. It's a heck of a menu. We also sell like other... You know, so, yeah, we sell some other. We sell we sell like some other other synthetic uh, things as well, and different kinds. Some of them are quasi legal or whatever, but those are the main ones. So you 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 added the extra products. It was late last year, right? So these are pretty new because the mushrooms have been there for a few years now, and you decided you were going to add yeah. in LSD and DMT. They're all on the same drug schedule in Canada, mm-hmm. so I figured you know if we were going to sell something in Schedule Three like a mushroom, why not sell a Schedule Three LSD as well? Ah, okay. That was going to be my next question because there was a there was a story in let's see if I got it here, CBC drugstore CA yeah the mobile drugstore in Vancouver decided to open <laughs> his doors and sell cocaine and heroin methamphetamine uh, apparently crack out of a mobile trailer and he got raided right quick. So are those Schedule One drugs in Canada? Yeah, I mean, I, I know that guy fairly well, and I support what he's doing, yeah. and he was definitely taking a big risk. No doubt. Um, but I think you got to, I mean, when, when I sell, when people try to buy psychedelics from us, they do have to show ID. Mm-hmm. They've got to sign a little form that they're going to be a responsible user. They're not going to go swimming or driving on this on the using the substance. We don't require that for alcohol, of course, in this country. Sure. But I thought, well, it's better to have a bit of a protocol. You know, I'm all for selling heroin to adults that need it. 
but I'd probably make them have a membership and screen them a little bit, especially mm -hmm. when you're the first guy doing it in the world. He's, I think he's the only guy who's ever tried to do a shop like this, as far as I know. Wow. Um, you know, and so, and then you can loosen those rules over time as you get experienced, as people get used to it. So I'm all for selling heroin to adults who need it and for sure. selling cocaine to those who want it and need it. But yeah, if I was him, I would have probably had a bit more of a screening process involved, but I'm not sure that would have stopped them getting arrested. No, uh, you know, but we'll see, he's not given up yet. He's got plans to come back and do more. And so he's still, He's still active. But, what is schedule? Uh, so yeah, in, also, in Canada, schedule three, uh, let's say the worst happens and the Vancouver cops or, you know, the state police, whatever the equivalent of that is, National uh, RCMP, uh, they come in there uh, to your shop and put you in handcuffs, shut the uh, shut the operation down. Would you be getting charged with felony drug distribution, do you think? I mean, what would the worst case yeah, scenario we don't, be? We don't call it a felony. We don't call them felonies and misdemeanors in Canada, but it would be it would be considered an indictable offense in Canada. That's sort of like a felony compared mm -hmm. to what we call a summary conviction, which would be a misdemeanor. No, I, I could face many years in prison. I yeah. mean, I'm I'm selling a wide variety of substances. I'm money laundering because any handling of money that was based on it. I mean, I, I, we pay our taxes. We don't really launder money. But just the fact that yeah. we're taking in money from drug sales and then spending it on groceries or whatever, that's money laundering under the right. thing. We'd be considered an organized crime organization when you got more than two people conspiring to break the law. So me and my staff or my management, that's a conspiracy. So, you know, maximum penalties would be quite a few years in prison uh in some quite severe severe sentence but you know so I far think that we, so so good I, yeah but i think that that a judge might recognize that i'm not you know I, i'm not in this as a selfish kind of a profiteering kind of thing that we take a lot of efforts to make sure that people are using these things responsibly that we're mm -hmm. directing the money that we raise uh into things that help the community that doesn't give you an excuse to break the law but it does affect you when it comes to sentencing and how you are perceived by the court but we would challenge it to the Supreme Court, and there's a good chance we would be able to have some victories along the way and potentially change some of these laws. You know, we've got uh, a lot of good legal arguments behind it uh, in Canada. I think we got a lot of precedents, and certainly I would fight legally as long as we could. But, but yeah, if the police really wanted to come after me and the courts really wanted to, to, to punish me, I, I do certainly have a, a risk to my freedom and liberty here that's not insubstantial yes yeah. is, is there like a, a bill any bills that are proposed in in terms of moving things forward or is it is that just not kind of that's not your um you mean at like a national level in Canada? I, I don't know at the, is it a, a national or is this is the province uh based provincial provincial well it kind of breaks down you know at, at ultimately all three levels of government play a big role right and like the decision to come after me or not is about the vancouver police they don't really do what the they're not supposed to respond politically to the mayor and the city council they're supposed to be independent but they take the city tenor into consideration i think the province in british columbia we just decriminalized in british columbia possession of two and a half grams of mdma methamphetamine wow. cocaine heroin and opioids okay. but not like psychedelics like mushrooms or things like that so it was only things that could weird. potentially be contaminated with fentanyl that they've decriminalized it's kind of a weird thing but that was between the province and the federal government kind mm -hmm. of doing it together ultimately the criminal law in canada is federal but the provinces have a lot of power to how they enforce things how they prioritize you know the province declared a health emergency over the overdose crisis in british columbia which allows them to operate a harm reduction sites that sort of defy federal law. Even our, our place, get your drugs tested. We actually have permission 
from the health authority in British Columbia. We're designated as an overdose prevention site, which allows our staff to handle illegal drugs. Mm -hmm. We would do it anyways, of course. And we started before we got that permission. But if they're going to give us permission, great. But that allows us to handle illegal drugs under this emergency situation. So all levels of government are involved. Uh, But there is talk at the federal level about psychedelics. But I think Trudeau and our current liberal government, they legalized marijuana in 2018. That took a lot of political capital. It took years of figuring out rules and having to buy off all the different stakeholders Mm. and get everybody onto it. Psychedelics are way harder because it's not just mushrooms. You've also got to regulate LSD and DMT. And they had enough trouble coming up with the rules for marijuana, which are very discriminatory and punitive better than prohibition but they're still terrible rules right with a lot of punishments Mm -hmm. and i think to them the daunting task of trying to not only do mushrooms but like all psychedelics just a few like they're not going to want to do it right away so i think it's going to be like with cannabis we're going to get de facto legalization where we end up with hundreds of shops across the country the odd raid here and there courts kind of going back and forth but not really willing to punish anybody and it more becomes an effort by police a game of whack-a-mole where they come in take your stuff take all your money, harass your staff, maybe mm-hmm. put you on bail for a while. No one goes to jail in the end, but it's still a big hassle and not everybody can take that kind of pressure. So I think we're going to see that happening. Just like with cannabis, we're going to see, and we're seeing it now. There's a few shops in Toronto that got raided recently. People have been opening mushroom shops in Hamilton, a city in Ontario. Mm-hmm. Some of them have gotten raided. They're reopening again. So, you know, Vancouver is kind of a safer area, but otherwise it varies widely across the country. Some cities are cool. Some small towns don't mind. Other places are really active where the police really come in day one, try to arrest them. So, wow. But they're not going to be able to stop us. We're going to see a massive growth over the next five years of these psychedelic shops across the country. I mean, kudos to these people uh, who are willing to put their freedom on the line for the freedoms of others to be able to put what they want in their bodies. I mean, I, this is uh, the risks that you guys are taking is absolutely incredible, and I, I really appreciate it. It's It sets an example, and of course, when people see a good example like that, they're more likely to emulate it. I was looking at a story in the Vancouver Sun about the uh, the cafe that you have, which is the Coca Leaf Cafe. Now, is that part of the uh, the mushroom dispensary? Are they the same building? What's that? You know, how's same it? space, same okay. space. Basically, ha- on the one side we have the cafe part, the other mm-hmm. side we have the mushroom dispensary part. So you can come in, get a Coca tea, get a sandwich and a cookie or a bag of chips or whatever. Hang out. It's a nice space to hang out. We got a lot of beautiful art on the walls. Uh, or you can just come in, buy what you need, and leave. So it's all one location. We've got a second location for our mushroom dispensary we just opened mm-hmm. uh, in a very busy kind of area downtown. Our first shop is kind of in the downtown east side of Vancouver, which is sort of on the edge of what's a lot of homeless people, some street tents, that kind of thing. Our second location is in a very busy kind of urban area, and we're looking at expanding to other spots in the city. But the Coca Leaf Cafe and the mushroom dispensary, that's one location together. Uh, They said here in this article that the city of Vancouver issued some sort of a notice to quote-unquote cease illegal activity, claiming that the sale of psilocybin products is not permitted and they can't issue a license. Uh, What happened with that? Did they continue to escalate the threats? Are you in the midst of some sort of a case? What? Where'd that go, if anywhere? We've actually got a court uh, case coming up next Friday, one week from today. But uh, basically, when we open cannabis dispensaries, they often would not get a business license. You would just open your location, and then the city would come after you eventually. And, and, and their weakness was you don't have a business license. We don't care what you're selling. 
trying to get into the whole medical marijuana argument. They were losing that, but they win the argument, no business license, we shut you down. And eventually mm -hmm. they got an injunction against a lot of dispensaries after years in the courts. So for this place, we got a business license. I opened as a cafe. We got a business license as a cafe in retail. Then we added in some retail, mm -hmm. which was the psychedelic. So now the question is more about, well, we have a license, but are we operating within that license? And it's a very different legal question that I think we have a lot stronger case on. Hmm. Um, but the city kind of felt that we tricked them, I guess, by by getting a license and then introducing some of the psychedelics. So they're claiming we don't have a license, but that's not true. But we'll, we'll see what happens in court next okay. week, uh, next week. But, you know, I, the, the, the result of this court case will not be like, Either we're shut down or we're totally free to do whatever we want. It's the beginning of a long stage of many court battles over many years. <laughs> uh, the end result of this series of court battles, probably in a worst case scenario, maybe we have to pay a fine or something. Hmm. And in a best case scenario, we win against the city and they're forced to leave us alone, which would be an amazing precedent for yeah. other shops. The city of Vancouver has the power to give a license to a shop selling an illegal drug. And we know this because before <laughs> cannabis was legalized, they licensed many cannabis dispensaries. So many were opening, they were losing control. They said, well, we, we at least want to put some rules in place. We at least want to keep them from being right next door to a school or from there being three on the same block. <laughs> so they wrote some bylaws about cannabis dispensaries years before they were legal. So hmm. they have the power to do that. They could license mushroom shops. They could license heroin compassion clubs if they want to at the civic level without changing the federal law. That's what I was saying. Every level of government is involved, right? So the, the Vancouver ah. government has the power to even do these things if they want to. doesn't mean we're not breaking federal law, but it really sets a precedent within the city. Uh, but we'll see what happens. They're, they're pretty nervous about, you know, they, the city council really just wants to pretend we're not here sure. and ignore it because whatever side they take on it, they're going to get people complaining at them, right? So they try to not to try to avoid it. And they, that's what happened with cannabis. They avoided with cannabis until there was 100 shops in the city. <laughs> and they were like, oh, we got to do something. Where do those, all the shops come from? And now we're at the same stage. They're ignoring it now. There's about 10, there's about 10 shops in Vancouver now. Two of them are mine. Uh, there's going to be 50 by the end of this year. 10 shops, just to clarify. Going, oh, where did all these shops come like Selling mushrooms. Mushrooms, least. okay, okay. Right. Uh, yeah, nice. no one else, as far as I know, is selling LSD, although I wouldn't be surprised if some start imitating me. They mm -hmm. see what Dana's doing, nothing happens to him. Right. Hopefully they'll start doing it too, which <laughs> yeah. means more competition for me, but also means a, a freer country. So I'm all for that. Well, right. You know, That's what you, you were saying before was you were helping people back in the day learn how to sell the cannabis because you want to have more people out there. You want to have more locations. Yeah. The more people that are doing this, the safer everyone is. I mean, most businesses don't operate like that by setting up their competitors sure. to that. But, you know, we have a different attitude, right? So. Yeah. Uh, it is amazing. Uh, and the uh, again, the website here, getyourdrugstested.com, mushroomdispensary.com. Of course, you have your own site, which is Dana Larson, D-A-N-A-L-A-R-S-E-N.com. What's, uh, what's one of the biggest challenges running a mushroom dispensary? Well, I mean, for me, the coca leaf is probably one of the biggest challenges. But when it, it comes yeah. to yeah, yeah, that stuff, but when it comes to mushrooms, I think it's... Uh, it's really just being able to explain to people all the different strains and varieties and how they all differ. You know, it's mm. like we got, we have 12 different strains of mushrooms it takes quite a while to go through each one with people. Also it's having a good landlord, I think is a key issue as well because landlords come under a lot of pressure from the city and they're kind of the weak link in the chain. Right. Yeah. Uh, so when they tell your landlord, Oh, we're going to give you a hundred thousand dollar fine and maybe you'll go to jail. 
even though it's probably an idle threat, most landlords just cave, right? Because right. they're not activists. They just want to get their rent just paid. Looking to make money. So yeah. I've been lucky to have some really good landlords that can handle the pressure. Wow. Sometimes I have to put money aside, say, look, our lawyers got 40 grand in a, in, in a, in a vault for you. If you ever get fined, here's the thing I'm signing saying, we'll, we'll pay that fine out of that money. Mm -hmm. And so we try to make our landlords safe. But having a good landlord is really key uh, to running this kind of business. Makes sense. I hope people could take uh, some lessons from this. Keep an eye on Dana Larson. Follow him. He's on Twitter at Dana Larson. You're also on Mastodon. Is that right? Oh, wow. I got a Mastodon account. I think I've only Mastodoned a few times. You know, we'll, we'll see if I keep it up there. But uh, for better or worse, I'm still mainly on Twitter. All right. Uh, we, well, we got to get you set up with one of those Mastodon auto posters. Yeah. That way you can post to Mastodon and have it shoot over to Twitter. That way you get them both the same be place. Handy. That'll be handy. Yeah, uh, social media having too many it gets, becomes complicated. I hope to hear good news about the court case, Dana. Thank you for joining us here tonight on Free Talk Live. Really appreciate the, the insights. Thanks so much for having me. It was yeah. a lot of fun. My pleasure. Thank you. That's Dana. Uh, Dana Larson from DanaLarson.com, MushroomDispensary.com, GetYourDrugsTested.com. Wish I could visit Vancouver, but I'm not allowed to leave <laughs> New Hampshire. Uh, if I could, I'd, I'd love to check that out. More coming up. Hour two's on the way. Some of you have wanted to support Free Talk Live's mission on a monthly basis, but don't want to support Patreon. Now we have an alternative that also helps our premier streaming platform, Odyssey. Visit video.freetalklive.com and click join at the top of the channel. You can subscribe for $5 per month, and unlike other subscription services, Odyssey adds their processing fee on top, so it'll cost a little over $5 per month, but Free Talk Live will receive the entire amount you pledged. Higher donation tiers are available if you're feeling so inspired. You'll get a special membership badge that's visible in the Odyssey chat room, and if we get enough supporters, we may enable members-only chat. This new subscription method is a great way to decentralize our direct listener support away from just Patreon and also support a libertarian-run business, Odyssey. Please visit video.freetalklive.com and click join to subscribe to our Odyssey channel and help support spreading our message around the planet. Visit video.freetalklive.com and click join today. Free Talk Live. It is Free Talk Live. We're kicking off the second hour of the program. You can join us here. The number is 603-283-6160. Here tonight, it's Ian. And Chris. That's 603-283-6160. Uh, of course, you can bring up absolutely anything that you want to discuss. We just talked to Dana Larson, one of the preeminent uh, drug freedom activists up there in Canada. He's based out of Vancouver. And, you know, there's not a whole lot of reasons why I would want to go to Canada in general. It's just, you know, I've been there before. You've been there once. You've kind of seen what you need to see. But I, I've never been to Vancouver. And, uh, you know, I would love to go and actually see a shop where you can walk in, buy some coca leaf tea or like a coca leaf soda, uh, which I presume gives you a little pep uh, to your day, and, uh, and possibly walk out with some mushrooms, some LSD or some DMT or pe peyote. You just pay cash and then, oh, you know what? I meant to ask him if he takes crypto. Oh, that would have been I a great question. Asked that. I should have asked it after we talked about Dash last hour, but I didn't. Maybe we'll have him back to give us an update at some point on what's going on there. But it just sounds like a really cool thing. And the fact that they've been able to operate there for years without any kind of meaningful molestation by the people calling themselves the government is an amazing success story. 
And it's something that I hope uh, is inspirational to others out there. Obviously, as he pointed out, he's taking significant risk uh, by doing this. And kudos to him for for being able to, you know, to do that. It takes a real special kind of character to be willing to take that kind of risk. And uh, but I really appreciate the fact that it's not just him. Like he said, there's 10 stores in just Vancouver alone that are selling mushrooms. Uh, and, and so, you know, based on what he was telling us, this sort of civil disobedience, this business civil disobedience, right? Because like normally when we think of civil disobedience, it's some guy going out and smoking pot in Central Square or it's some sort of individual or if you're lucky, a group of people that just go to some public place and they break some prohibition. That's mm. kind of like the when I think of civil disobedience, that's what, what comes to mind. Definitely. But, but this is a level of civil disobedience that you got to have some money, right? Like you got to yeah. have some money, you got to have some time. Like he's obviously been a successful businessman. He was one of the co-publishers of Cannabis Culture magazine, which for years was like the top counterculture magazine in Canada, one of the top 2 counterculture magazines in all of North America. There was High Times and then there was Cannabis Culture. I mean, it was an incredible institution. Yeah, I, I, I'm not a, a cannabis user, but um I, I've heard certainly heard of You've both heard of those. Of yeah. yeah. So yeah, I mean, so it's, I, it's that prominent in the even even amongst non users. Yes, exactly. They, they made a real name for themselves for sure. And, and as I was saying, they reported on what we were doing here in Keene back in in 2009 with the 420s here. So uh, really appreciate the work that they've done. So obviously, he was very successful at what he was doing and has the money to where he can go and get into a commercial lease. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that's what, five-year minimum, that, mostly, commercial that's, leases? That's pretty standard, um, right? five-year minimum. And it, there's usually you know, there's usually a lot of cost to it, too, just yeah. because there's, I mean... you got to renovate the building When you're whatever. looking at space to rent, it's, it's whatever the price is, there's usually double that. Sure, because they have the fees that come in, uh, what do they call them, triple net, I think is the I code. I can't remember exactly what they are, but, like, there's, yeah. like, grounds fees right. and... Yeah, or well, something to akin to. It includes the, yeah. clearing the snow, right, and putting right, salt right. down, and clearing the parking lot yep. during the winter time. And then and, you know, you know, you got to get internet access and utilities sure. power and yeah. power bills. It's a big and, deal, right? It's right. A big deal to open any business, let alone all the stupid permits or whatever nonsense. And yep. he's, he's in court over that, as he was telling us. But the amount of money that you have to put to sink into something like this, and then you know, we haven't even talked about the inventory. Right? I mean, it's one thing to source legal products from legal places it's a whole other challenge to source a reliable supply because that's one of the problems in the black market is it isn't the most reliable place because you know people get arrested sometimes and the supplies dry up or uh, the border patrol snags the product as it's coming across the border or Mm. whatever yeah it's it's interesting um usually what you do in situations like this is you plan for a certain amount of loss to the product. And, you know, it's funny because it, I sort of understand this from, from you know, being in the electronics business. A certain percentage of the product is always going to be defective. Mm-hmm. Well, the same thing is sort of true in, you know, uh, you know agriculture, just in general. You're going to have a product that's going to go bad on you or, you know, whatnot. And and, and in this case, it's, it's seized. Some of it's going to get seized. Yeah. So you just Absolutely. have to, yeah, you have to, you have to work that into your business model. I presume he has over the years cultivated a, a group of trusted 
sources that are fairly close to them, right? That, you know, you don't have to go across the border to get mushrooms. You can just, you know, a grower in Vancouver or something, right? So I'm sure there's some stuff that's coming local. The marijuana is probably coming local. The the mushrooms, there's probably a chemist uh, in Vancouver or in, you know, Canada that's doing the LSD and, and things like that. So I, yeah. I imagine he's he's going as close to home uh, as he possibly can. But these are all big challenges. And this is, this is big level civil disobedience. It takes a lot. You put a lot on the line. Not only could you lose the entire inventory to a raid and whatever cash uh you might have on hand because that's gonna it ain't coming back no. right yeah. uh you could also lose your freedom yep um and and you know for him to just get on here and admit money yeah. laundering right like on the show and, and you, know, you know what's interesting Wild. is and i don't know how it is in canada specifically but you know you could you can basically end up with a situation where you i don't know if i would say well i guess yeah even if you win the case you could you'll, you'll you may still lose your inventory um yeah and because good luck getting that back it's it's illegal and when we start talking about like possession laws if they were to give it back to you well they would be able to charge you again because the possession <laughs> is illegal so even though you won your case yeah you know it's gone it, yeah, yeah it's gone uh, so, um, but so, like, this is a level of civil disobedience that you just don't see very often. But I thought it was—it's such an interesting story about what has happened there in Canada, where they led the way to legalization by just doing it, not waiting for some politicians to oh please, oh please, can we sell cannabis? No, they just opened a storefront and they started selling cannabis, and then he taught other people how to do the same thing, and then other people opened storefronts and started selling cannabis while the politicians were still trying to figure out how to legalize yeah, it. The open defiance thing, you know, it, doing it blatantly and openly is such a good idea, I think, in many in many cases, just because it's it's like, I mean, what are you going to do? I mean, the worst thing that happens is maybe you get arrested. Well, you could go to prison. Um, I mean, that's the worst. Thing. It's but, not just get arrested. But, you could go to prison for well, years sure. for drug distribution. I mean, sure, sure. But it also, if, if there's other people willing to step up to the plate, and that's sometimes the hard part is getting yeah. other people, other being or being around other people that will step up to the plate. Um, but there are people like that in, in New Hampshire, I, in a lot of cases, I think. So Are there? I mean, I hope that there are. I would love to see I, I something so. like this um, emulated I mean, here. You weren't the only person arrested, like in the Crypto Six case. It's not the same thing exactly, but well, you yeah, know. in Crypto Six, we weren't doing civil disobedience. In Crypto Six, we weren't uh, breaking. I understand people That's pled true. guilty. I understand it's not that, exactly the same thing. I understand there were some people who pled guilty, but that wasn't yep. because they actually committed crimes. That wasn't because they were doing quote unquote crimes well, or doing civil disobedience. They pled guilty because they were afraid to go to trial. Sure. Understandably, sure, it doesn't mean they were actually doing those things illegally or that those things are illegal that they were doing because they're not i i would agree with you i i think though the it, it wasn't whether or not they were illegal or not legal it was that people did them knowing that they would have a you know they would be um how do i say this uh examined and potentially arrested yeah, well, I think we would say we knew that we were being watched. We knew right. that there was... There's that, a risk to it. There, We knew there yeah. was risk involved, for sure. And uh, at least in my case, I can say I was willing to uh, go up against whatever whatever came. I didn't realize it was going to be as, as big as it was as far as all the charges that they brought. I figured at the most I would be facing an unlicensed transmitter or money transmitter charge uh and you know a couple others and ended up being 25 charges they dropped I, 17 of them before trial thank goodness yeah. but uh <laughs> I'm, I'm but that wasn't civil disobedience because 
It is still my belief, even though a jury has convicted me of all eight counts, it is still my belief that the things I was doing is not illegal. There's no law on the books about cryptocurrency sales. It's just not there. Yeah, it, it it is interesting. Um, the to to frame it the way you are, uh, it's it's probably correct. It's just so weird because it's it's at the same time it's like you're still fighting it. You know, it's like you didn't just take a plea deal. Um, of course not. I didn't do anything it's, illegal. It's like, I didn't do anything it's wrong. Act, it's it, you know, it's weird because it's like activism, but you didn't do civil disobedience. It's it's such a well, it's always activism when you don't go along with the state. So right, what, right. You're, what you're talking about would be a non-cooperation, right? When the state puts the screws to you and you don't go along with what they want you to do, which is take the plea deal, then you're not you're you're still exercising your rights in the form of you're not just doing what they want. And so, uh, to me, it was it's important to make a stand for what you believe in, and that's why I really love what Dana Larson is doing there in vancouver and i hope it catches on and maybe it is because i've got a story here from msn and originally the los angeles times that in los angeles there's now uh what was just a cannabis dispensary that is now selling some magic mushrooms it's in a rundown shopping center in coastal la county Offering the standard fare, pre-rolled joints, vape pens, a wide range of edibles, and a selection of smoking accessories. But there's one extra class of items that is distinguishing the storefront on the county's suburban fringe. It's a glass case displaying magic mushrooms and a variety of items containing psilocybin, which is the compound that provides said magic to those who consume it. A compound that is still illegal statewide. As the state legislature considers a bill to decriminalize several psychedelics, including psilocybin, some L.A. state or area businesses are openly selling the potent hallucinogen. Although cannabis is legal statewide, no Southern California municipality or county has followed the lead of Oakland and Santa Cruz by decriminalizing magic mushrooms. And just to be clear, I'm pretty sure that in Oakland and Santa Cruz, the decriminalization of magic mushrooms only has to do with the possession of them. They did not decriminalize the sales uh, of those things. But regardless, uh, according to the story here, there's a thriving market for the fungi and other psychedelics. And L.A. entrepreneurs have long taken advantage of the relative scarcity and high demand by selling them illegally in gleaming storefronts and in parking lots. L.A. County Sheriff's Department served about 50 search warrants at dispensaries selling magic mushrooms in the last six months alone. So they are not being ignored They are being targeted. Meanwhile, there is growing support for legalizing or decriminalizing psilocybin and other hallucinogens among psychologists, researchers, veterans advocates, and others who've witnessed mental health turnarounds after psychedelic treatment. And we've seen a lot of the studies here on Free Talk Live looking at these psychedelic uh, substances and seeing they've just had tremendous results for people, whether it be PTSD, uh, depression, for instance, anxiety, even other drug addictions. Mushrooms, for instance, have helped people defeat things like alcoholism or uh, cigarette addiction, nicotine addiction. So they're very, very powerful substances that can almost kind of help rewire the brain and address some significant uh, problems that, that one has in life. But that's not going to stop the sheriff's department from coming in and raiding these places, which apparently they've been doing And uh, so they're pushing for changes. There is a Senate Bill 58 in California that would eliminate criminal penalties for possessing, growing, and sharing small amounts of several psychedelic substances. But still, that wouldn't legalize sales 
of those substances. You could give them away, but it's kind of hard to make that sustainable. I mean, you have to you have to pay somebody to grow these things, right? Like usually people aren't willing to just do this as a charity. Uh, and, and if there were free mushroom giveaways, then there'd be plenty of people lining up around the block to get them and they would be, they would be sold out within, within minutes. So you have to have a price, uh, on these things. So even the bill that's, that's currently being proposed is not going to legalize the sale of mushrooms. So then they talk a little bit about the bill itself and, you know, what's it going to do? It's decriminalizing possession or use of certain psychedelics. And it's being argued about in California's legislature. At another coastal L.A. County cannabis dispensary, a few miles from the first one, customers hand their driver's licenses over to a receptionist who asks them to turn their hats around and put their cell phones away before they take a seat in a small waiting room. When it's their turn to shop, they're buzzed past a locked door into another high-ceilinged room to survey the psychoactive wares. Most are there for the wide array of cannabis products and accessories, but in one corner, near the jars of green marijuana buds, a larger glass jar is filled to the brim with stubby mushrooms, which have brown caps and psilocybin's characteristic bluish tint. Clear plastic bottles of liquid, described by their labels as mushroom-infused liquids, glow in the shelf's neon strip lighting. Gummies containing a psychedelic mushroom blend come in colorful toadstool-shaped pouches, including flavors like Passion Tango Lemonade. Chocolate bars from two manufacturers, one based in Oakland, contain a pre-measured dose of mushrooms in each square. So there's a lot of different dosing options for these products, which is great. gives people choices. Uh, Over multiple visits to the two suburban dispensaries, the Times did not witness the sale of any mushrooms or psilocybin-based products. One customer said in the parking lot after buying some cannabis edibles that he didn't even know that they sold shrooms. He said, that's crazy. I might have to come back sometime. (laughs) Uh, Still, an employee said that they sell quickly after we get them in. People really love them. Yet local dispensary owners are frequently busted for selling mushrooms and other illicit substances. In April of last year, the L.A. County Sheriff's Department tweeted that during the previous half year, it had made 277 arrests and seized approximately 4,000 pounds of marijuana, 3,300 pounds of marijuana edibles, 29 pounds of mushrooms, and 1,000 pounds of fentanyl from quote-unquote illegal marijuana dispensaries in the county's unincorporated areas. It's unclear whether the two dispensaries sell illegal drugs other than psilocybin mushrooms and their byproducts, none were on clear display at either location. The lieutenant at the Sheriff's Department's Narcotics Bureau said that psychedelic mushrooms are commonly sold at dispensaries in their unincorporated areas where even cannabis-only outlets are illegal. So this is happening, uh, and it's happening on apparently a fairly frequent level in Los Angeles. And again, this is essentially they're following the Dana Larson model. They're Putting serious, uh, taking serious risk by putting these products on display and making them available to, uh, it sounds like, any adult that wants to, uh, to purchase them. The officer in this case said they won't openly typically sell them. They usually have a small amount, 2 to 10 pounds of mushrooms. He says, and you'd have to ask for it because they don't have it on display. They might be somewhere out of view, like in the back. Describing illegal dispensaries as, quote, a really big problem, unquote. Not sure why that is. <laughs> is it just because they don't have uh, licensing money coming in? Is that why it's a problem? 
Moss said that despite the sheriff's department's efforts, the illicit industry persists because it's so lucrative. He said, quote, we investigate and serve search warrants at these illegal dispensaries in attempts to shut them down. The analogy is kind of like whack-a-mole. You shut them down and they reopen in another <laughs> location. Which is interesting because, I mean, presumably we're talking about felony charges here, right? Like, isn't this isn't, you're not just catching a misdemeanor charge in any state in the United States for selling mushrooms. It's just not happening. Hmm. So I don't understand how you can just pop right up the next day it's you know I, here's here's my speculation is what they probably mean by that is that other people other people okay. will be opening up uh because there's just so many people willing in uh, to, to stand up and they say, see the market yeah is they demanding see the market this, and, so. and they see other people doing it and so they they, they get yeah. in on it too that would make sense because it doesn't make any sense to get arrested for felony drug distribution yeah. and then walk out of jail after you get bail conditions. If you get bail conditions. And, yeah, and open up another <laughs> shop. Let's go to Alu Axelman on the line here from the Liberty Block at libertyblock.com. Hello, Alu. Hey, how's it going, guys? What's on your mind tonight? I have a lot of things on my mind. I want to comment on the last few episodes. I'm still like two days behind on the podcast. But um, the most recent thing I heard you guys talk about was Jay brought up Daniel Penny and Jordan Neely. I finally, because Dan Bongino, who I listen to, who's usually pretty good, and usually if he's going to say something, he's generally right. Um, he's not always pro-liberty. It doesn't realize his session is the solution. But um, he said he's an expert in chokeholds and BJJ. He trained for a while in jiu-jitsu. Um, and he said it's not a chokehold. It's a carotid restraint. Um, I and others who have decades of experience in Brazilian jiu-jitsu and other grappling and wrestling things never heard that term ever. So it's a rear naked choke, and that's what it's called, at least in this mm -hmm. universe, um, at least in this Milky Way. So um, it's, it's a rear naked choke, and it looks like Daniel Penny, this uh, ex-Marine who subdued this guy, who, again, the guy was probably threatening people and probably mentally ill, but also I think um, Penny was probably overzealous mm -hmm. as far as, like, choking him that quickly. Um, so I, I kind of give a nuanced video that pisses off both sides, as usual. So I finally, yeah. anyway, Bongino motivated me to make a video. So I think yesterday I did a video podcast of, with all of my nuanced um, analysis and, and opinions, um, but like speaking medically about what occluding a vein and artery and trachea actually would look like mm -hmm. and, you know, how he may have died and stuff. So that's on Odyssey, Rumble, and Facebook and the podcast and everything. So that, that was my first thing I wanted to say about, like, I finally made a video about that. Yeah, it's it's tough. I mean, being on the outside of that situation to really get a good feel for what was going on for listeners that aren't familiar. You, you know, maybe you haven't heard. There's a, a Marine that choked out a, a what looked like a schizophrenic crazy man uh, on a New York City subway within the last, I guess, few weeks, couple weeks. And, you know, one side says that the crazy man was just acting crazy and that he wasn't threatening. He didn't overtly threaten anyone. He just dropped his jacket to the floor and was saying that he didn't care if he died or something like that. Uh, he was hungry, etc. The other side is saying, no, he's a, he was a threat. He was a danger. Some of the people around him felt threatened. Now, I don't know if they felt threatened because he actually issued any threats yeah. or if it was just because he was acting crazy. None of that's been really made clear, and unfortunately, the only video of the event, at least so far that I've seen, picks up in the middle of the man being uh, put into this chokehold. So he's already in the chokehold when the video starts, so you don't get to see whatever it was that uh, that came before. So there's different kind of opinions coming from different people that, that were there. It's hard to really tell. I mean, people feel threatened all the time over other people's speech, right? Like, yeah. it, like not even like... In in person but like on the internet so i i wouldn't be surprised if 
somebody said, oh, I felt threatened from this lunatic and not even though he didn't say anything, any kind of threat to them. Yeah. And so yeah, the yeah, I can't imagine like manslaughter charges, at least not being appropriate. Dan, Dan Bongino seemed to say it was totally self-defense, defense of others. This guy is a saint and Neely was a, a violent criminal and there shouldn't be any charges at all. And it's a travesty pretty much. Um, th- this is seems like textbook manslaughter mm-hmm. where, um, you know, he didn't really intend to kill him, but he did kill him yeah. due to some level of uh, recklessness or, or negligence, which does seem to be the case. Again, um, we'll wait for the whole thing to play out and, you know, the jury will decide, but to say that charges of manslaughter is not appropriate, I can't imagine, you know, it doesn't really make any sense to me. And that is what they have charged him with in this case, right? Yeah, in, in New York State, it's it's weird. Apparently, it's um, manslaughter to second-degree manslaughter. I think generally it's like first, second, third degree, third degree is manslaughter, which is the involuntary in most states, I believe. But it's somehow it's, it's second-degree manslaughter, which I, I guess is the least um, serious of all them, but it still could be like five, ten years in prison, I think. I know you said you had something else you wanted to comment on. You want to stick around? Yeah, All right, we're here with Alu Axelman. He's the president of the Foundation for New Hampshire Independence, great uh, liberty activist up here. We've also been talking about psychedelics and just opening up dispensaries for magic mushrooms. They're happening in Vancouver uh, in a big way there. Apparently also Los Angeles County is uh, have some businesses that are openly selling mushrooms in. Some of them are getting raided. There's more coming up. It's Free Talk Live. Open. The number is 603-283-6160. That's 603-283-6160. We are talking about some of the most ballsy, risky civil disobedience out there, and that is the opening of an actual storefront to sell things that the government says is illegal. And we're talking about uh, psilocybin mushrooms. They're being sold at cannabis dispensaries, whether they are illegal or illegal cannabis dispensaries, out in uh, Los Angeles, uh, also in Vancouver, they're being sold with relatively uh, no issues in Vancouver. Los Angeles, however, police are <laughs> conducting raids. They are arresting people uh, there. But in Vancouver, it's been going pretty smoothly so far. Uh, if you want to comment, you're welcome to join the show. The number is 603-283-6160. However, things did not go smoothly for a man who set up shop in a mobile trailer in downtown Vancouver and started to sell crack, crack cocaine, <laughs> methamphetamine, and heroin. The police didn't let him go for much more than 24 hours, I think. We can talk more about that. But Alu Axelman is on the line here with us from LibertyBlock.com. And you wanted to comment on some of the stuff we've been talking about over the last few days. So uh, what else, man? Go ahead. Yes, sir. Well, before I even get to that, those who are selling drugs that are not legal, according to the D.C. politicians, should move to New Hampshire, especially if they love liberty in all other areas as well as drugs. And we have the highest concentration of pro-liberty people in the universe, regardless of what King Mark says. So I think they should move here. And we have so many people here helping that if cops did come, we would have 100 people filming them for every one cop there, or we'd have jury nullification get them off, or we would just secede very soon anyway, and then federal drug laws wouldn't apply here anyway. Well, I think that uh, if it were to be done here in New Hampshire, I think you'd want to start at the same level that they did in Vancouver 15 or, or 20 years ago, which is to say 
just opening a cannabis dispensary. Uh, take your risk as low as you can take it. I I don't know if society is ready for uh, open mushroom sales, but you might be able to find a friendly jury yeah. on cannabis sales. I think that's where, I, if it were me, that's where I would, would cut it off. Yeah, that's where I would start, too, um, with cannabis. So anyway, speaking of victimless crimes, I wrote a whole book, Presumed Guilty, that um, all about due process violations and victimless crimes is a full chapter, and Bonnie's reading it right now for the mm-hmm. audiobook. I'm actually – I got a book signing event scheduled for June 3rd at a store in Manchester, a nice big bookstore called The Bookery. It's a really nice bookstore, hmm. and they're going to have me on this Saturday the 3rd from 4 to 6. So it's in like two weeks Oh wow, um, to do cool. a, a book signing, speaking about presumed guilty, signing books, hanging out, chatting with people. And um, I'll have my books and probably my new book uh, preview if it's not published yet. My book, The Pocket Guide to Killing Gun Control. I finally took on gun control in a nice long book, but simple. And it goes from every argument from constitutional to principled to practical, mm-hmm. actual statistics, everything in the world about gun controls. And then a whole lot of other info at the end just about guns for those who are interested. So this bookstore, do they actually sell your books? I think the tentative plan, I spoke to the manager a few months ago when we set this up. I think the plan is that after Saturday, they will have my books in the store. Oh, great. That's a cool nice. way to uh, to kick it off. So Yeah, it's going to be super fun. So I'm encouraging all porcupines in the Manchester area to come out and show them that a pro-liberty book author, book signing, can attract people. And then they'll want to do it again with, with me or other pro-liberty yeah, authors because we have a few dozen. Now, of course, uh, you're also going to be at the Porcupine Freedom Festival. I suspect you're going to have a table there. So I'm sure there's some people that they're just not up in uh, the area at the moment. But if they want to meet you and pick up a copy of your book in person, you'll be able to do that at Porkfest, right? Yes, exactly. I'm going to be at RV1 again. Uh, the It's, it's ALU, A-L-U is the name of the site this year. And so it's like the first thing when you come in from the parking lot nice. from that that bar that raises to let the car in. Mm-hmm. If you turn to your left, you'll see me there. I'll be right there all there. week. Me and a few other um, little porcupines I'll probably hire to help sell books when I'm busy speaking. <laughs> um, and yeah, I'll have all my books there for sale, like uh, you know, a few dozen or a hundred of each, and, and they'll be for sale for gold back, silver, crypto, fiat, and barter all week long. And I'm giving a few talks about my books and stuff like that. Um, I'm hoping the Pocket Guide to Killing Gun Control will be totally published and available, and I'll have a hundred copies there by then in a month from now. Wow. Um, so that should be super exciting too. Excellent, Lalu. Uh, I appreciate it, man, and uh, look forward to seeing you when we see you. Thank you so much. Thanks for the call tonight. That's Alu Axelman from LibertyBlock.com. Does some great work. Lots of writing. Prolific oh, yeah. writer. Yeah, he's, uh, he's he's got a lot of books out. Yeah, he doesn't just write books. He also writes a ton of articles on his website, yeah, LibertyBlock.com, and somehow has time to have a family and, and work I, somewhere. Yeah, <laughs> and he works out, too. Yeah, so. he... He's a he's, he's got going a, a busy. Uh, I don't know if he sleeps. He may not actually sleep. He, he doesn't sound like. I don't it. see how he could possibly he, get. Uh, he definitely get any uh, sleep in there. not. It doesn't seem like a sleeper kind of guy. Uh, so just since we've been talking about it, here's the the story I mentioned it earlier as we were interviewing Dana uh, Larson in the first hour. This story came out earlier this month. It was a 51 uh, year old man named Jerry Martin who apparently got himself a mobile trailer attached to some kind of truck or whatever and pulled it up in the downtown east side area of Vancouver, setting up shop and making sales of cocaine, crack, methamphetamine, and heroin. Uh, And the Vancouver police have, well, arrested him and I presume confiscated everything. Uh, Wednesday that week, the CBC News spoke with Jerry Martin about the launch of his mobile drugstore. He told On the Coast 
that he planned to sell illicit drugs in small quantities up to a maximum of 2.5 grams. Remember, we learned from Dana, I did not know this, but in Vancouver, and I think he said it was the whole of British Columbia, they had decriminalized possession of up to 2.5 grams of things like heroin and you know, mm. methamphetamine or whatever. But for whatever reason, they didn't decriminalize possession of uh, some of the psychedelics, which is weird why they would do the hard stuff, but not the not as hard stuff. Anyway, so I guess that's what motivated him. He was like, you know, okay, well, now that it's decriminalized, he wanted to go sell it, which, of course, they didn't decriminalize the sale of those things. <laughs> of course not. They decriminalized the possession of them. But, you know, kudos to him for being willing to take the risk. And it wasn't just the risk of the police putting him in handcuffs. He also was wearing body armor in his mobile store to, you know, presumably because he thought there was a chance somebody was going to rob him who weren't the cops. Oh, wow. Right? I I was assuming that the body armor was to protect himself from being shot by the cops because they, you know, those guys like to shoot people. Well, I mean, that's a a realistic possibility as well. But, I mean, if you've got some crackheads that know that there's a big crack supply at the corner of whatever it was and wherever, apparently Maine and Cordova streets, one of them might just get it in their head that they can just go ahead and take the crack instead of of pay for it. Uh, Earlier this year, a three-year project pilot approved by Health Canada did decriminalize possession of up to 2.5 grams of opioids, cocaine, methamphetamine, and MDMA for British Columbians age 18 or older. Uh, The police spokes bureaucrat stated that the VPD supports harm reduction services and decriminalization. Quote, however, we remain committed in our position that drug trafficking will continue to be the subject (laughs) of enforcement. Unquote. Which, you know, it just doesn't make sense. If people understand that drugs should be decriminalized that there shouldn't be criminal penalties for people who have a health problem right luke who are addicted to something this is a personal problem this is a a problem that affects the the individual now you can argue yeah but it affects other people because then they're going to steal to get the money to buy the the stuff that they need or you know they may do something crazy while they're really high but the fact is prohibition drives prices up so that's what drives people to have to steal in order to purchase the drugs. Uh, you know, you know, the, you know. It just seems so insane, though, to argue that you should be arresting people in you know, a crack addicts uh, because of the crack, rather than actually arresting them because they stole stuff, right? Like, like, sure. I, I get this arresting them because they stole stuff, but that doesn't necessarily mean every crack addict is is going to be stealing stuff. Well, and now they are decriminalizing possession, so now they won't be arresting. Presumably, I don't know if that they can still confiscate because I know that in. Um, is it uh, Portugal where they've had drug decriminalization right, right. for 20 years or something like that? I believe they can still confiscate the drugs and then they like force you to go to a treatment program or something like that. Mm-hmm. So there's still some kind of coercion yeah. uh, going on there, but you won't get a criminal charge. You won't have to go to, to jail. Uh, so it's still a, a big step in, in the right direction. So uh, presumably in Canada, or at least in British Columbia, they are not arresting people for possession of these these very, very hard drugs. So they've come to that realization of this isn't helping. Okay, It's not helping a person who's down and out. They're a crack addict. They got a problem or whatever. It's not going to make them better. Certainly not the way they were doing it before. To put them in I mean, a jail. Yeah, they, they were arresting people before for you know weed, and then they end up throwing them in a in a cage, and then and while in while in prison, they get addicted to something harder because that they never even encountered before. 
I'm being told in our chat room here by Baraka66, who I believe is a Canadian, if I recall correctly. He says the guy in the story we're talking about wanted to get arrested to do a charter of right challenge in court. Now, I'm not sure what that means. It may have to do with what Dana Larson was telling us about earlier, where there's this Canadian Charter of Rights like, that came like into a place. constitutional sort of thing. Yeah, it came into yeah. place, he said, in the 1980s. So they're still trying to like figure out what it means. What is the, you know, how, does, how do the courts interpret that? So this may have been part of a larger plan. Uh, it's a very, very interesting case. He had a sign up, like a nice, nice printed sign, kind of like you get the signs that you put up over at Porkfest, that corrugated look. Oh, yeah. Uh, with all his prices. So cocaine, crack cocaine, nice. <laughs> heroin, all the prices for the amounts uh, that he was selling. Martin had told CBC News he was prepared to be arrested. Oh, it's right here in the story. Uh, once the store opened, in fact, he said one of his goals is to launch a constitutional challenge arguing for a legal, safe supply of drugs. He said at the time, quote, they've called for a clean, safe supply, the police and the government, so I'm hoping they just let me do what they need to do. He says I sh- they should have done this themselves. And, and, yeah. and, like, <laughs> and Dana did touch on this earlier, like, well, you know, maybe the government should do this. I'm like, no, you really don't want the government handling drug sales. I mean, they they suck. Uh, they suck at doing everything that they try to do. Yeah, I mean, this is this is why it, it causes prices to go up. It causes all sorts of other problems when you have government, you know, getting involved. It's not it's yeah. not worth it. Uh, in Canada, if I recall, um, I don't know if it's still true. It probably is. But when I was there visiting 15 years ago, roughly, I was in Toronto, and Canada they have state liquor stores, uh, state. Not just liquor stores. I'm pretty sure beer and wine uh, stores. Okay. So you can't go into, or at least you couldn't. Maybe if it's changed now, Canadians, please let me know. Uh, but at the time, you couldn't just go to like 7-Eleven or a convenience store of some sort and buy beer. You couldn't just buy a, a bottle of wine. You had to go to the state store. So my girlfriend and I at the time, we wanted to go and get something to drink while we were there. And we went to the state outlet or whatever they call it there. And it was closed. And it wasn't even that late at night. It was like 8 p.m. or something (laughs) like that. Like, not a late time frame. And we were in a major city. We were in Toronto. So you would figure, I don't know, keep the place open till 10 or something like that. But no, no, it's a government store. So they have no competition. They'll set set whatever hours uh, they want to. Uh, Let's see what other things here. In an email, the city of Vancouver's chief license inspector said the municipality will not issue business licenses for the sale of illicit drugs (laughs) such as heroin, cocaine and methamphetamine. She said further, quote, should the city be made aware of a retailer selling any of these substances or products containing them, they will be subject to enforcement for operating without a valid development permit and or business license, (laughs) which may include orders, fines and or prosecution. So I, you know. I'm very interested to hear what happens with this guy. His name, again, is Jerry Martin. Uh, he says he's going to do a constitutional challenge on this. And Baraka66 says in Quebec province, it is available. That is to say, uh, alcohol is available in the 7-Eleven. Ontario, it's state stores and grocery only. Okay, so that explains it because we were in the Ontario province, which is where Toronto is, uh, is located. So, so I guess it's different. Uh, depending on which uh, which province you're in. Let's go to the phones here. we got Major Payne on the line in Michigan. Major, you're on Free Talk Live. Hey, good evening, guys. Hey. Yeah, you were talking about uh, California and the uh, cops saying, well, we shut one down and they just pop right up. It's like playing whack-a-mole. Mm-hmm. 
Well, that made me chuckle because mushrooms pop up overnight too. <laughs> they do, don't <laughs> That's they? That's cute. <laughs> <laughs> and I was I, I, I would have called in earlier with your guest, but I didn't want to waste it on just one call. Mm-hmm. I wonder if you ever tested any STP. What's that? It's a very hardcore hallucinogenic. I'm not familiar with it. STP? Yeah. It, it's a three-day trip, and you go in peaks and valleys. You keep getting higher and lower and higher and lower and higher and lower. Have you tried it? No, I have not, but I talked to a couple cats back in the day. This was in the 70s when, mm-hmm. you know, you could still get real LSD, brown and clear, liquid, mm-hmm. whatever you wanted. You can still uh, get real LSD today, um, Major. Yeah, I, I'm sure you can, but they made the chemicals harder to come by, and you know, as they do. But sure. I wanted to talk. I wanted to talk about the future of AM radio. You wouldn't believe sure. it. The politicians are actually getting along on something. Oh yeah, I heard about this. Go ahead and fill our listeners in. It was definitely something I thought about talking about. Well, Tesla is going to ban AM radios in their cars. They're just not going to put them in. Mm-hmm. And Ford talking about following suit next year. Really? But, yeah, it's an electric yeah. car thing. Uh, there's uh, interference, essentially. The, they got some kind of a capacitor in the radio yeah. to keep it from... And they had to do the same thing with resistor spark plugs back in the day. Yeah, so they there's had, RF so, from So the, what's the, happening exactly? Where's the, there's, so there's inter, it would interfere with AM radio? There's interference with the AM side of radio from some of the uh, parts of these electric cars, okay. essentially. And so they just they don't want to put it in, you know. Like why? Interesting. So yeah, they maybe do, they could filter it somehow. They would do but, FM, but not AM. Yeah, apparently they're doing FM, not AM. Yeah. Okay. What they don't realize is the AM stations have a high power. After sundown, if you got a high power station, you can crank the power up. I can, I got a high resolution AM radio. I can pick up St. Louis, Kentucky, mm-hmm. uh, Chicago. Um, I, I can't remember the farthest place I've ever picked up with clarity, but the ones I'm talking about come in just like it's from, you know, the next county. And right. if you ever have a national emergency and you got to spread the word, well, by God, you better have something that will get more than one state away. And the other thing is that AM radio probably is about half of your stations. It's most of the conservative radio, most of the Christian radio. Most of the radio that's not NBC, ABC, CBS, and CNN. Sure. Yeah, no, I get what you're saying. I mean, not every AM station is a powerhouse, though. There's some of them, a lot of them are less than 1,000 watts or about 1,000 watts. And I remember when uh, I was on Free Talk Live, the second station we were on was an AM, just a tiny little AM station in Sarasota, Florida, 500 watts at nighttime. So at nighttime, they don't, in, most AM stations don't increase wattage at night, they lower. Uh, so this station would would drop its wattage as soon as the sun went down, and if you were driving on any road in the city and you went under power lines, you could hear the interference from the power lines on this particular radio station. So I suspect that's part of the problem with the electric cars is there's you know whatever the equipment is that's causing the interference is in there, and they would have to put some kind of excessive level of filtering to deal with that so it probably would be an increased cost of building the car in order yeah. to protect quote-unquote am radio from being able to be received without interference but what you're calling to tell us about here major is that congress is possibly going to act about this but congress yeah, they're actually getting together on something for a change isn't mm-hmm. that amazing yeah what, I, i'm not in favor it or to protect it 
to protect AM radio and force car manufacturers. Oh boy. Yeah. Yeah. Force car manufacturers to uh, include it. Basically. Interesting. That's what you're calling well, about, mean, they right? Forty thousand dollars for a car. You tell me they can't put a thirty dollar capacitor in the damn thing. I mean, I suspect it's even cheaper than that. It probably isn't a huge cost to uh, do whatever it is, you know, put whatever equipment they need to to make sure that the AM signals are not interfered with. But it's their business, and they shouldn't be forced to put something into their car. Of course, they've been forced to put things into their cars for years with you know uh, the various different California mandates and the federal mandates. Yeah, with- you know, you know this this argument though, I'm I'm not a I fan of. I would have of. to argue it is for the public good. It's it's it's. It's not the. It's not that the government does like uh, like a perfect example. I was at a hearing in New Hampshire, uh, and I testified against a some some stupid bill that was like a one sheet piece of paper that would have they, they'd make you fill something out. And it, the reason was stupid, but that's not the point. The point was it wasn't that one sheet of paper. It's all of the sheets of paper because they add up, mm-hmm. and that's where the cost is. It's. If you look at like the cost of manufacturing vehicles in certain countries where there you don't have all these regulations, like I think India, for example, you know you can get cars really cheap. You can't get cars cheap here not in the here. United States because of all the regulation. Right. And it's not one regulation; it's all the regulations added up. Yeah, for sure. So, Major, what's your argument here to force car manufacturers to put AM radio in? Well, I just think it's for the public good. Why? We ought to be able to be informed. And if, you know, but, something, whether it be a tsunami or a solar flare or whatever, takes out all your local grid. Mm-hmm. And uh, I got solar panels. You know, a lot of people got the old crank up radios and whatnot. Yep, I've got one. People need to be able two. to be informed. Yeah, so why would, why would you mandate it? You can, you can still get that if you want that, right? If you want to protect yourself, in, you know, so to speak, uh, you, know, you can get yourself a crank radio. I have one. Sure. Yeah, or you can, get a, you can probably have an aftermarket radio put into your car, right? Like if you don't like the whatever it is that they give you in the, the vehicle that you purchased, then you can add something to it, I, I would think. You can still do that, right? I mean, I imagine it'll mess I, up I have, your dashboard, but... I had a 68 Galaxy, and it only came with an AM radio. And back then, they sold a little gizmo they called an FM converter. Sure. It was only a couple wires, and you hooked it in. And I tell you what, that old Ford, that radio sounded great. Well, what good is it to put in a device into cars that, you know, young people don't even know what it is? Well, good question. Maybe young people ought to be a little more educated by old people. (laughs) Major, thanks for the call tonight. I appreciate it. You know what's funny about this is, like, I want a radio in my car, but I wouldn't expect... Do you use it, though? No, but I wouldn't expect... I, I wouldn't want the government to mandate it, right? That's like, right. Yeah. I want a radio in the car, but I, I'm gonna I'm gonna achieve that through the free market by buying a vehicle that has a, a radio or you know retrofitting it, you know, by you know buying a radio and having it installed in my vehicle. Right, and as you said, you have a crank radio that's portable that you can take anywhere you want. Right, you can take it into yep. any room of your house. You can go outside. You can take it into your car. Yeah, uh, if you wanted to do that. You don't need to have it on uh, on the actual car. So here's the story. It's from Talkers Magazine. It, it came into my email box uh, yesterday morning, and I thought, uh, 
the reason I didn't bring it up as show prep is because it's just a bill. It may not go anywhere, right? So I, I tend to not really like talking about just bills as much as bills that are like on the verge of being passed and or have been passed, right? So yeah. this could go absolutely nowhere. Uh, but it is being sponsored by a bipartisan group of Democrats and Republicans, and it's both senators and representatives that are doing this. It would, quote, direct federal regulators to require automakers to maintain am broadcast radio in new vehicles at no additional charge specifically the bill would do three things one direct the national highway traffic safety administration to issue a rule that requires automakers to maintain am broadcast radio in their vehicles without a separate or additional payment fee or surcharge two require any automaker that sells vehicles without access to AM broadcast radio before the effective date of this regulation to clearly disclose to consumers the vehicle lacks access to AM broadcast radio, and three, direct the Government Accountability Office to study whether alternative communication systems could fully replicate the reach and effectiveness of AM broadcast radio for alerting the public to emergencies. And then they talked to the National Association of Broadcasters, which is, of course, a lobbyist group, for the radio industry, and they uh, filleted the senators and the representatives for their leadership in advocating for AM radio listeners. This legislation ensures that the tens of millions of Americans who depend on AM radio for news, entertainment, and critical safety information each month can continue to have access to this reliable communications medium. As to the (laughs) backbone of the emergency alert system, AM radio is instrumental in promptly disseminating vital information across all mediums during crises, ensuring the communities remain safe and well-informed. So, yeah, they're basically saying that we need AM radio to be mandated, even though you can't mandate that someone use it. Because mm. it's in the if it's in the car, they can't force you to actually have it on. So, like... This just seems so pointless to me. I get, I get that people out there that are older really love AM radio, but those people are probably no younger than fifty-five at this point. Uh, if you want to join the show here, the number six zero three two eight three sixty one sixty. And look, I understand our show's on a bunch of AM stations. The majority of them are AM stations. So we'll continue the discussion. Uh, hour number three is on the way. You can join us here. This is Free Talk Live. Talk Live. This is Free Talk Live, hour number three. We're kicking it off right now here in the studio. It's Ian and Chris. Phones are open. You can join us here. The number is 603-283-6160. That's 603-283-6160. 6160. We were joined a moment ago by uh, Major Payne, who called the show to bring up this bill that's in Congress. Uh, And that's the reason I didn't bring this up myself, just because it hasn't passed. You know, whether it even has a chance of passing, I don't know. But it does, it is still kind of an interesting issue. And that is that there are some car companies, some car manufacturers, who are no longer offering AM radio in their electric vehicles specifically. So they're not cutting it out of all their line of vehicles. It's just the electric ones. And it has to do with interference. Some of the electrical components that are in electric vehicles, the electric motors specifically, can cause interference 
with AM radio frequencies leading to a poor listening experience, right? Why would you want to put something in your car that isn't going to be a good experience? And so according to U.S. News and World Report, there was a survey done of 20 automakers found that eight of them have stopped offering AM radio in their electric vehicles, including Ford, Mazda, BMW, Volkswagen, and Volvo. And while it sounds dramatic, the problem has a reasonable solution. Stellantis, I guess that's a car company, took steps to remedy the, the issue by planning to move the radio receivers away from the electric vehicle components in <laughs> next generation vehicles and say they use shielded components to reduce interference. Volkswagen complained, saying the solutions bring extra weight, which could impact the range of the vehicles. Extra weight? I can't imagine it's that much I, weight. Yeah, though. like this just seems like uh really like i i shielding doesn't usually add that much like yeah, yeah i mean we're we're talking about like trivial amounts i think right and if you move the antenna you, to the back of the the car or whatever then it's not like this cable could possibly be that long in the first place yeah i i don't know what it's a car i mean are they shielding the engine or shielding the cable i mean or what well, i guess it's not really clear what components they're yeah. talking about here I mean, if we're just talking about a shielded, extra shielded cable, would, it sounds like it's probably a cable or, shielded, or moving the antenna to the back of the car where the engine isn't located. I mean, that doesn't sound yeah. like it's that crazy of an engineering uh, solution. But anyway, the point here is not every company has done this. Yep. Some companies have figured out solutions, and they've said, "Okay, we think this is important enough. We're willing to well, redesign and, the car." You know it, what this really is is evidencing is that there 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 are going to be market options, right? You know, this is a free market doing its thing. The government doesn't need to mandate it. If you no. want AM radio, well, buy the this car is something, that has it. Yeah, this is something to now be aware of and be conscious of and your car might not come with it if you if you if you aren't aware of it. But <laughs> this is why you should be aware of it. Yeah, I suspect you know, uh, you know I don't know what the demographics are of electric car buyers, right? Because they are more expensive cars. Yeah. So it's probably not going to be your first time, you know, 21-year-old or I whatever. Mean, that's What's the story with satellite? I mean, satellite radio still exists, right? Yeah. Is yeah, that in these cars or are they... Is Some that... of them, yeah, probably. Okay. I know, I know my car... It's usually an add-on option. Yeah, I know right. my car came, I think, standard with satellite, if I'm not mistaken. Maybe I'm not. That's maybe I'm usually... Mistaken, if it's coming but... standard, that's probably being subsidized by the satellite company. Yeah, probably. probably. You get like a, th- a three-year or whatever subscription, and then they want you to pay for it. Yeah, I don't know. I'm not really sure, but um, but I know the I know that I know that the reception for AM or FM or both is not as good when you have satellite radio for some reason. I don't know why. Um, but uh, there's it doesn't make any sense there's some reason for it apparently. I've never heard that. Okay. Yeah, it wouldn't make any sense. I mean, it's they would probably just be two completely different antennas in the car i think so. they're not i think it's the same antenna which might be why the reception isn't as good hmm. yeah i can't really say because like i don't think you could receive a satellite signal with a standard am fm whip antenna i think okay. you need something else so, so there is for that although they do have repeaters in cities for the satellites systems so like i don't know i don't know enough about the tech on that question i don't really know anything about it yeah but yeah it, but, The thing I want to focus on here is the mandate aspect of this. So the proposal here is that the government mandate that all these companies that have cut AM out of their electric vehicles put it back and, you know, do whatever they need to do to make sure it's in functional order for the small percentage of customers 
that they have must be a small percentage because if it was a large percentage, if people were telling Ford or whoever it was that, that cut it out, if their customers were saying, we really love the AM radio in this you know, in this vehicle, AM radio, is a that's the linchpin. That's going to be my deciding uh, factor on whether or not I buy this electric vehicle. Then they'd still have them. You know, you know, what's interesting is, too, uh, in this regard, um, car manufacturers have apparently brought back physical buttons because there really? was such an outrage of the, the touch, touch screens. screens um yeah people were wow. avoid, apparently i guess it's i, I haven't i don't know if i read the whole story but I, uh, uh, my understanding of it is it's something like people have been avoiding the purchase of vehicles with touch screens that's fascinating and so like the manufacturers have been bringing the car manufacturers have been bringing back physical buttons Wow, that's something I'd really like to know more about that. Uh, is it like an option or a standard I, you know, thing? Like or I what? said, I, I, mu- I think I must have read a summary of it, yeah. but I don't actually have, I don't that's know. That's interesting. If you guys know more about it, feel free to weigh in here. The number is 603-283-6160. Let's talk to Chuck. He's in Washington State. Chuck, you're on Free Talk Live with Ian and Chris. Yeah, uh, major pain. Thank you for that call, brother. I, I really appreciate that uh, commentary about the... Uh, uh am radio <clears throat> i'm actually listening to you on 1340 am in needles california which yep. has free talk live and it's on the internet now sure. what if the government wants to know what you're listening to that's why they're systematically eliminating am radio i mean if if uh let's let's just say i did something crazy two years from now and uh it was on a uh, a thought path, and they needed to find out, well, why did this person do this? And they found out that I listened to uh, KTOX on 1340 AM. That would be a valuable information. But at the same time, if you wanted to uh, uh, go ahead and just get rid of crap that people over the age of 55 really don't listen to, then go ahead and get rid of that stuff in your electric car. You know what I mean? So there's a lot I don't of know what you mean. On. You don't know what I mean? Yeah, what are you referring to? The stuff in the electric car, get rid of. What do you want to get rid of? Well, that's well, isn't that what they're trying to do in all uh, electric cars, is get rid of the AM radio? No. No, only some companies have gotten rid of AM radio in their electric cars. So what oh, were because, you proposing? And, and, I'm just making an observation about uh, the way things are uh, going here in uh I really called about mushrooms, to tell you the truth. <laughs> okay. In Vancouver. Uh, so, you know, how could you charge somebody with trafficking drugs if uh, if they're growing out of the ground right where you're, you know, at in the same city? It's not like it's fentanyl, for Christ's sake. You know what I mean? Well, uh, I mean, they it, do it because they have guns and prison cells and men willing to use them. So that's how they do it. Uh, but I agree. I get your point. I mean, mushrooms are a natural product. Uh, they do happen on a natural basis, uh, growing out of cow dung and things like that. Um, and people have been using them for you, generations. Well, even the bark chips that you get from landscaping companies, they have uh, spores in them. And uh, actually, hmm. there's a, a new uh, uh, genius of psilocybin that's been uh, kind of discovered or rediscovered in northern california and landscaping around apartment buildings and it's the same company that's uh you know has the same contracts (laughs) wow isn't that funny uh that has the same contracts with all of these high density residential areas and uh 
you know, uh, uh, hotels and whatnot, their landscaping areas, when they go in and spray in the bark chips, it's got spores on them. So I don't know. It, 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 this whole mushroom thing, it's a big deal here in the Pacific Northwest. Um, Is there something going on up in Washington State as far as, you know, potential decrim? Sure, there is. There's a actually there's a legislator in my uh, uh, neck of the woods, Ann Rivers. She's a Republican. She's supporting a uh, a bill, and I don't know how far it got this legislative session, but she's supporting a bill to look into basically what the state of Oregon is doing mm -hmm. and looking at uh, uh, look using uh, fungi and mushrooms or whatever you want to call it to uh, address mental health issues. Okay. And uh, that's basically what Oregon did is they decriminalized uh, uh, mushrooms and uh, but you've got all these can't. Uh, they they did that, a therapeutic program over there, as I right. understand it. I don't know what yeah. the uh, recreational. I don't know what the recreational status is. I know that Oregon. No, of course, it's not recreational. It's 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 they've tied it into uh, mental health. Mm -hmm. So it's not like uh it's not like you can. Uh, it's not like the marijuana um, industry right now at all. It's uh, two separate. I, yeah, I guess they're taking the same path like back in 97 when we started talking about legalizing marijuana for medical purposes. That's where we're at right now with mushrooms over here on the West Coast. Yeah, and it's not so, just the West Coast. There are some cities. Uh, Denver, of course, also has decriminalized. Oh, yeah, they're way ahead of us. Yep, and then yeah. also there's actually even a couple cities in Massachusetts, a couple towns, I think, in uh, Massachusetts where they've decriminalized the possession of magic mushrooms. So it has made its way over to the East Coast. Ann Arbor also in Michigan uh, has it as well. So it is starting to spread around. And, Chuck, thanks for the call tonight. I appreciate it. Let's go to Ricky. He's in Pence, or, uh, Ricky from the Commonwealth in Pennsylvania. What's up? Thank you there, brother Ian. I love you, brother Chris. Good evening. What's on your mind, Ricky? Well, I'll get into my topic real fast, but here's one for Major Payne. I heard him talking. Uh, he can do what I did if he needs to and get a friend to get it. He can get it on Amazon for 25 bucks. Get it ain't what? Bad for, well, it ain't bad for 25 bucks. Get what? You can get, a radio. It's got crank. It's got solar. Oh, AM, FM radio. Right. Yeah, it's right. got, yeah, it's got it, it, AM, FM. Uh, you know, a thing for your USB for your cell phone, mm -hmm. super bright LED, twenty five bucks. Boom, easy. Yeah, no it, doubt on Amazon. Back into my topic, brother. They're, they're readily available outside of Amazon as well, like Walmart sure. and you know Target and. All I'm surprised sorts of they still yeah. sell them there. Yeah, um, I I've seen, uh, I know I've seen the weather ones at Walmart recently. Huh. Okay, um, but yeah, they're they're readily it's available. It's got weather too, and it's a decent radio for twenty five bucks. Not the greatest radio. No. I mean, but you know what? For twenty five bucks, it's pretty good. In an emergency, then it could be very, yeah, very useful. I, I, as far as I haven't really fully tested it, but it does work. I think that the USB, you could get a call out of it, maybe even more. You know. All right. What else? All right. But then, anyways, uh, on to my topic. Yeah, what I was thinking about was uh, being invited to the chat server. You know, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about that FMA, Brother Ian. Oh, yeah, yeah. There was somebody in the chat room who wanted us to invite you. Uh, you can go to chat.freetalklive.com, and you can get the step-by-step -step instructions there on how to join it. Well, that's where I wanted to talk to you about. Now, yeah. I, I was very big on Skype, you yep. know, 
And I, that's where I like the idea of the audio channel. Now, this kind of sounds like Discord there, and that's why it concerns me. No, no, it's actually not Discord. Uh, it's it's better than Discord. Discord is a centralized server owned by a corporation that we uh, we did have at one time. But uh, when you have a well, Discord... That's another story. Yeah, when you have a Discord server, you don't actually have a server. They have the server, and hmm. they let you use it. But it's kind of funny, because they don't they call them servers or something? They for, do. like, the rooms? Yeah. Which is really weird, because it's not. Actually, the whole Discord thing was kind of my fault and involvement with Stephen of Ohio. That's another story for another day. Because hmm. I was on Skype, and he infiltrated that and tried to kind of take over things with two people from Skype, the woman and the dude that nobody liked. Yeah, I have no idea what you're talking about right now. I do remember Stephen in Ohio, or Stefan in in his case, he he was the guy who who kind of started the Discord server for us and got us to move over there. Ultimately, that thing blew up at some point because their, uh, their, their user restrictions are very, very ridiculous there, and essentially we couldn't moderate the server to their preferences at uh, corporate discord so they they just snatched it away and shut it down i did have a question for you then ian yeah okay now here's my so matrix is better because we run the server it's our server but i just had a concern ian because you know i have to by necessity i'm getting a new old device i'm not going to be using talkback where i can just tap and touch it tells me what it is and i can open stuff Uh that's not an experience for me i used to be able to see that's what i want Mm-hmm. To navigate web pages. Now, here's my concern: Do I need to download an application like for Android? Uh, yeah, yes no? yeah. I don't. I don't think there's uh, any web uh, interface. Or is there a web interface? There, there might be. I think Element I think there, might have a web interface. I think there is, isn't there? I don't know. That's a good question, Ricky. I think there. I think there is. I think you can go to. You know. You know what's interesting is I think it's possible to use the Matrix stuff. Or so here's the thing with Matrix: it's it's not one server. Uh, it's you. We have a server. But we don't act. You don't actually have to connect to our server directly because it's it's what they call federated. So you can connect to any matrix server and and then join a room that's on our server, basically. Okay, there is a uh, web app. So yeah, you don't need to download an app for this. You can just go to app.element.io, app.element.io, and then you can uh, follow the instructions at chat.freetalklive.com and just apply those instructions to the web app version of element so element right. is so, the oh, open that's source wonderful. that's yeah. wonderful so there you go Rick. yeah because that yeah that's great so you know what you know tell all the chatters i'll be looking forward to that audio channel and you know uh, it makes my heart go bumpity bumpity i'm looking forward to it i don't think there's a uh, per se an audio channel in there you can that's do you a kind cha- of mentioned there there are ch- rooms in which you can enable an audio like jitsi uh, you can connect through through Jitsi. You can also send audio clips, so that may be sort of a way around it. So, like, if you record a clip, you can send in, you know, uh, the MP3 or whatever, the wave file into the room. So there are ways to do audio in, in elements. Well, you, you not, know what it was, Brother Ian? In, in, in 2017, I was really big on the underground groups of Skype, you know, and that was a whole different thing. But that's a question. Why did you stop using Skype for calling in? Because it's Microsoft and it's terrible. Oh, is that all? <laughs> yeah, it's terrible. Uh, well, thanks. and you know what, too? I mean, it probably is good anyways because most people, you know, don't have an application of any kind really like that. You know what I mean? Probably most people, a lot of people don't use a SIP line either, you know? No, hardly so anybody uses SIP. 
But it's there for people uh, that want to. Hardly anyone uses the zip line, but it well, is I heard, there. I heard. I heard Dave. I heard the guy sheriff from New Mexico. And one tip for him: what, the reason why I sound pretty decent on my crappy flip phone. This is the same way when I went on Skype back in seventy. I sound like I was in a studio. Put it on speakerphone. Don't talk into the hand. No, that's a terrible idea. It, speakerphone well, almost I, always sounds worse. That's well, terrible I advice. I hear myself all the time. I got a thirty dollars flip phone. Thank you for the call tonight, Ricky. I appreciate it. Generally, speakerphones sound worse. Just yeah. a fact. <laughs> uh, the number here is 603-283-6160. If you want to sound great, then take the time to get the SIP line option set up on your phone. Go to sip.freetalklive.com. Super important person, sip.freetalklive.com. <laughs> Somebody came up with that. It I love it. It wasn't me. I don't deserve credit. Uh, let's continue here. Kadu is on the line in Connecticut. Kadu, you're on Free Talk Live. Hey, I just want to say that the guest you had on earlier, he is a hero and he's saving lives. Yes, he is. And I want to give it, and I want to give him his props. Thank uh, you. Yeah, you're referring job. to Dana Larson. People, for anyone just tuning in, Dana Larson was with us from the Mushroom Dispensary uh, in Vancouver, Canada, and he's also doing drug testing work up there as well and literally saving lives. The thing is, you don't yeah. even know how many lives you're saving when you do that kind yeah. of work. I mean, he's he's testing 1,000 drug samples a month, 1,200, he said, uh, drug samples yeah. a month up there. It's huge. And I could see how somebody could casually listen and think, you know, maybe he's a good guy, maybe he's a bad guy, blah, blah, blah. But, like, um, I I believe, uh, and it, it it set in with me as I was listening, this is a guy who's saving lives. Mm-hmm. And, you know, what I love about this guy, uh, I already forget his name, even though you just Dana Larson. Uh, Dana Larson. Mm-hmm. Um, what I love about him is he's very confident and he's willing to face the ramifications that he may face right. um, and, and the judgment he may face. Um, and But he comes across as confident, but he doesn't come across as cocky, like he's unaware of it. And he just seems like a very brave, confident individual. So yeah. the only point of my call tonight was just to give him his props and say, Dude, you're doing a fantastic job. That's all the reason I'm calling. Thank you, Kadu. Uh, I agree with you. I don't have any. I don't know if he's still listening to the show or whatever, but uh, I'm sure you could reach out to him directly if you want to. He's on social media, Dana Larson, uh, and, and the guy is doing amazing work. And if you get a chance uh, and you go vi- go visit Vancouver, stop in to, to see one of his stores. I bet it'd be a heck of an experience. <laughs> uh, thanks for the uh, the call tonight. I appreciate it. Uh, by the way, Dana's other website besides the mushroom dispensary is getyourdrugstested.com, which is just amazing harm reduction. And you can't know how many lives you're affecting in a positive manner. It does remind me that here in New Hampshire, Chris, there was a bill this year, and I don't know what the status is right now. I think it was going over. It had passed. I believe it had passed the state house, uh, but it, I don't think it had gone through the Senate quite yet. And it is a drug testing bill, so it would uh it would decriminalize the drug testing equipment. So right now in New Hampshire, it the is drug illegal testing equipment criminalized. That's weird. Like you would think that it would be the drugs that you'd be in possession of when you're doing the testing that would be criminal. 
Yeah, well, they also made the testing equipment criminal. So like, <laughs> it's weird. it's in the it's in the part of the statute that's like the drug accessories, so scales and baggies or wow. whatever, right? Like these things that are I, illegal. I, I kind of understand their logic for like baggies and scales and things, but not testing equipment. Yeah. So uh, some folks, including our very own state rep here in Keene, who lives down the street. Jody, she's uh, one of the sponsors, I think, of this bill, mm-hmm. and it it did actually very, very well in the state house. It was supported on both sides of the aisle. Uh, I think it actually got passed unanimously through the committee, so like it's a good sign. Um, you think that would have a easy time of getting through, but the senators are a little <laughs> yeah. bit more, um, let's just say, elderly and a little bit more yeah. prohibitionist. In fact, a lot more. In fact, there's some. News here that I've been sitting on for a few days, and since we're kind of talking about the drug topic here tonight, and uh, the legalization status here in New Hampshire is still on hold due to the New Hampshire Senate. Now, to be clear, I actually, on one hand, support the fact that the Senate has stopped the legalization measure that was being proposed, because the one that made it through, well, two of them made it through the House this year in New Hampshire. One of them was tax and regulate, and the Senate shut that one down. So I'm, I'm fine with that because yeah. I don't want to see taxes and regulations. Um, however, the other one was HB 360, which would have just simply ended prohibition on cannabis for anyone over the age of 21. You would have been able to buy it, sell it, possess it, grow it, and there would have been nothing the state could have said about it. It was the best cannabis bill I've seen in, in some time. They also tabled that bill. Hmm. So it's kind of like stuck on the table for the rest of the term. And so it doesn't look like that one's moving forward. Either. Uh, and bad. at the time, I have some quotes of what the senator said in their quote-unquote discussion about legalization. Senator Bill Gannon, a Republican from Sandown, said he's opposed to legalizing cannabis. Quote, for those who say we are a drug prohibition island, I say we are a drug-free oasis. He said, <laughs> yeah. yeah, he really said that. Yeah, we're not yeah. drug-free at all. We're coming up. <laughs> This is Free Talk Live. You can join us here. You can bring up anything you want. And we got time for you. The number is 603-283-6160. That's 603-283-6160. It was just brought to my attention that apparently some of our rooms in the Matrix server are not accessible through the room listing, which is weird. And I'm wondering if it's because... NSFW, not safe for work, is in the room title, or if there are other rooms that huh. perhaps are not are not visible. So, I mean, there's definitely some. I think that's a setting on the room itself, and I do know that there's not all of the rooms are public. No, but these are these should be public rooms. These are rooms that I made with the intention of of being public. Anyway, it's something we'll have to look into because I definitely don't want rooms that should be seen to not be seen. So we'll we'll try to figure out. What's going on with that? It's Ian and Chris here uh, in the studio. You can join us online, of course, anytime you want over at freetalklive.com. We have many features there. And if you want to support the show, you can join the AMPS program at amps.freetalklive.com, amps.freetalklive.com. That is where you can sign up. 
as over 130, I think, right now of our listeners have done, including David Itza, who is a gold-level supporter. David is contributing uh, 10 bucks a month to the AMP program, or the AMPS program, amps.freetalklive.com, and that, uh, that helps us advertise, market, promote, and support Free Talk Live. So if you appreciate the work that we do here, then that is a way to help us out directly. So all we ask is five bucks a month. David is doing twice that. So definitely appreciate the support. AMPS.freetalklive.com. So we were talking about uh, drug decriminalization, the AM radio mandate that the federal government is looking at passing. Also, I was going to share some quotes. These are some real treasures here, Chris. Uh, from the New Hampshire Senate in their discussion of why they don't think there should be legalization. Now, the reason they shut down the legalization bill, which I wasn't a big fan of, so I'm kind of not sad about it. Well, the one of the two, you mean, right? Yeah, they shut them both down. Uh, the one of the two, I'm not sad they shut down because it had tax and regulate in it. Boo. And that we definitely don't want. Of course, the odds it will not get that are very slim because people like uh, Chris Sununu, who's the governor here, he actually came out after the Senate killed the bill. He actually came out for the first time in his six years or whatever in office, and he said that he supports cannabis legalization. He just wants it to be done where the state has control. <laughs> So tax and regulate wasn't enough control for him. He wants state monopoly distribution. He wants the, well, you know how the state handles liquor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In New Hampshire. He wants that for cannabis. So, you know, it's going to happen at some point. But with people like Senator Bill Gannon saying things like this in the Senate, quote, for those who say we're a drug prohibition island, I say we are a drug-free oasis. <laughs> I mean... Is he delusional? Is I, he... I mean... This is not co- comedy, do I they, don't think. Yeah, I, I really want to know... It's Are these people being driven from like um nursing homes to the senate like <laughs> they don't ever see the real world yeah because yeah. i mean this hasn't been the case uh, ever really uh, you know um there's been drugs since before they passed these right. you know drug criminalization uh bills and most it, of these people understand that there's a heroin problem in the in new hampshire right like right? how do you think that's working out yeah, it's clearly not a drug-free oasis, and the fact that this man could even say that and be taken seriously is just shocking to me. But yet, he's been in there for as long as I can remember, this guy. He's just, he gets keeps getting reelected and reelected. I mean, we're literally, some of these people, they're going to have to die. I, I don't mean violent or anything like that. They're going to have to age out of this office. <laughs> they're going to have to literally pass die, away. pass away, <laughs> yep. before they go away. Uh, and he's not the only one. Lou D'Alessandro. This is a Democrat who, so the first guy was a Republican. This is a Democrat who is also really old. And he opposes legalizing cannabis. Quote, the message it would say to our children that marijuana is safe and could be used without harmful consequences and nothing could be further from the truth. I mean, this is just crazy logic. I mean, we have alcohol that's legal, yet it's the totally state sells safe. it. Yeah, it's totally safe, it, kids. Drink as much alcohol as you want. 
just because something's legal what? doesn't necessarily mean it's like a good idea or safer, you know, anything right. like that. Um, there's all sorts of products on the market, like cars and motorcycles. And, you know, there's different levels of safety, you know, you know, for example, with like a, a motorcycle, it was potentially more dangerous than maybe a, a car because, you know, you know, there's definitely less around you to Correct. protect if you get into an accident. Right. But that doesn't mean we ban motorcycles. No, in fact, in New Hampshire, you're allowed to ride a motorcycle with no helmet on. Right. <laughs> By definition, that like, is an unsafe activity. How How is it sending a message that it's safe if they legalize it? It's absolutely ridiculous. And the fact that the legalization movements have been active in New Hampshire and everywhere else for decades... This guy has been in hearing after hearing after hearing where people have explained these things, and he's still saying the same old drug warrior refrain. It's the same old line. You know, you know, it's it's interesting because at the same time, just whether something is legal or not legal doesn't make it safe um, or not safe, right? Like, of course not. (laughs) I got some bleach under the sink. You can go drink it right now if you want to do something unsafe but completely legal. Yeah. Uh, now, there was at least a few sane voices. Donovan Fenton, who is from this area, he's a Democrat, he pointed out that uh, there's major revenues that the neighboring states are getting. He said, these are big numbers. These revenues are significant, and New Hampshire is kept from getting these dollars. Yeah, of course. People from New Hampshire are going to Vermont. They're going to Maine. They're going to Massachusetts. They're going to whatever's closest, and they're buying their marijuana there if they're not just buying it on the black market still. And there's a lot of people doing that. And you, you can see the cars in the parking lots. It's a federal crime that they're committing when they buy from one state and then cross state lines in order to bring it home. But they don't care. They probably don't even know that. I mean, you know, the humorous thing about this is it is. But at the same time, the federal government doesn't have the resources no. to go after the small time, you know, drug user. It's they, they don't. They don't even go after it's. I think it's somewhere. I think it used to be, or maybe it's now three million. I forget. But there's something like if it's under three million dollars for like financial crimes, the FBI doesn't even investigate. So do you really think they're going to be going after somebody who's you know? And it's a different department. It's not going to be the FBI. It would be the DEA. But the DEA isn't going to be investigating small time no. drug dealing, let alone you know a user crossing the border. What else here? Uh, Senator Denise Ricciardi, who's a Republican from Bedford said the pricing of legal pot will be too high. Quote, this is a segue to the illicit black market to come in and undercut and cause more harm, more addiction, and more death. Yeah, it's a really confusing perspective. And if she was actually coming at it from that perspective, I mean... Minus the whole death and addiction thing, because that's ridiculous. We're talking about marijuana here. No one's going to die unless a you know a pallet of it falls on top of them from off the Walmart roof or something like that. You're not going to die from smoking cannabis. So just putting that aside, you could argue correctly that if taxes are too high, 
black market sellers would still have the lowest prices, and so therefore people would still continue to buy in the black market. That's what's happened in California. That's what's happened in states on the West Coast where they've got like 25% tax at wholesale, 25% tax at uh, at the, the grower, 25% tax at retail. So, I mean, it really pumps the price up unnecessarily on the legal market. I mean, but doesn't that just uh, make the argument that it should not be it regulated? It should have no taxes. Right. Yeah. There should be no taxes. There should be no regulation because then you're not putting those who have uh, – you know, uh, maybe a better quality product at a disadvantage and, and the people who have less money can afford that better product. And there's no yeah. need to, you know, that's the it. question I would have asked her if it were me. Right. Like and this. These are just quotes from their discussion. Sure, sure. But if I were talking to this woman, I would say, so therefore you will support the other bill then. Right. The one that doesn't have tax and regulate. Right. And then, of course, she would say no and then <laughs> explain why she wouldn't support that either. Uh, looks like the final vote on the bill was 14 to 10. So you had one Democrat joining the uh, Republicans to vote against the bill and one Republican joining the Democrats to vote for the bill. So it was not quite a totally partisan effort. And the one Republican who voted uh, to content to legalize was Senator Keith Murphy, who's the free stater. So the one free stater senator did the... Uh, quote unquote right thing here it would be really tough to tax and regulate yeah this is the tax and regulate bill Mm. i mean it would be really tough to you know to vote for this i'm not gonna i'm not gonna say he's bad for for voting for this because you know what it is it's it's a wash right it's it's basically you don't you gain some but you lose some and you're not really ahead i would say it's if it stops people from going to jail more often than I would say it's a win, but that's already pretty much stopped. Decriminalization right. pretty much stopped it. Like there's no one is getting arrested for possessing marijuana these days in New Hampshire. And this bill would have allowed legal sales. So, yeah, I guess you could argue it would make it so there are fewer people getting arrested for selling it. So maybe it's a step in the right direction. I mean, I could see the justification for voting for it. I mean, the problem, I I think the bigger problem here is if it is that if you pass this, it's not likely they're going to, they never remove regulations, especially with financial things, right? Where they're making money off of it. So I don't think, I think if it passed, it probably would be a bad thing in that we're not going to be able to undo it. Yeah, that is the that is you know, the downside. I mean, once you create a bureaucracy or you empower a bureaucracy to have control over something, it's very very hard to get them to let it go. They will fight tooth and nail to keep their power. Yeah. Right? Which is why, you know, getting rid of the liquor commission is going to be a very hard thing to do. That of course would be a nice thing to accomplish. It would be a great You know, it, it would success. be you know what would be interesting to do is not necessarily uh get rid of it, but simply open the market up to competition. Yeah, that, I mean, so you would say to have the state stores, but allow other yeah, stores I mean, to, to the pop up. To the extent that they're profitable, mm-hmm. it does subsidize, uh, you know, the the our tax base, right? Well, wait a minute. Uh, the taxes are subsidized by the state stores. So, would your proposal be that the non-state stores would have to collect a tax on top of their? No, uh, it, they would be able to compete on an equal playing field. So, so no taxes for the private stores. Right. State, however, would send its revenues to the tax coffers. Right. It's going to be tough to get because, that one to pass. Because the profits, because what would happen would be the state stores would continue to send their profits 
to the state, but the basically uh, for-profit entities that are not the state would get to keep those profits. So the the pricing might be might be the same. It's just who's getting the money. They say that New Hampshire is actually the cheapest liquor in the region or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Like in all the the northeast. I don't know if it's all of the country, but because they don't have quote unquote taxes on the even though it's still revenue for the state, yeah. they don't have taxes so, on top of the actual some, cost of the product. And it may not be, you know, it's it may not be as terribly run as a lot of government programs um, might be part of the explanation for that i think but the other the other aspect well, plus of a lot this of people is, come here to buy it right people are coming from out of state to new hampshire to buy alcohol from the state store and there's another aspect and that's scale um because there's mm-hmm. a single entity they're going to be able to get much better pricing than if you have a lot of smaller entities true uh you know doing the acquisition so they can lower their prices um, and of course, it's in the state's interest to have lower prices than the surrounding states because it then draws in more business from the surrounding states. So, yeah, I, I would love to see some reform on uh, alcohol in New Hampshire. And step one should be to just completely abolish the liquor commission. I mean, let them sell the, the state stores off. But I get your I get your proposal as well. I don't think we're seeing any proposals right now on on alcohol. I don't think the yeah, don't the think so Liberty reps are really doing anything on that. And it's I, it's too bad. I don't think I, my my gut is it probably wouldn't go anywhere if you did propose a probably bill not. like I'm suggesting. Because um, then, then they'd start screaming about, oh my god, what about the children? Uh, because you know our state stores are just so much better at keeping kids from getting alcohol. Because no one in no children in New Hampshire well, get alcohol. And the real the real reason is because it would undermine potentially if there is competition the state's revenue the budget right they're not the state wouldn't get as much money from their sales because there's now more competition yeah that's true you know assuming that a smaller players are able to compete well that's why they would just need to abolish more state government right so if we can whatever the percentage is i think we looked it up once i think it was like eight percent so it's actually fairly significant all things considered the percentage of the state budget that comes from the alcohol sales. Right. I mean, it's not a huge chunk, but it is a, a chunk. So if you can cut 10% of the government off, then you can just get rid of the alcohol revenue entirely, right? You don't need that anymore. Just get rid of it. Mm. Uh, so like there was a proposal to get rid of the Department of uh, Health and Human Services and get rid of the state police. We could cut them out too. For sure. Get rid of the DMV. I mean, there's just so much we could do, but we got to have more free staters here. We got to have more like-minded liberty oriented people here in New Hampshire before any of that's going to become possible right now. There's not enough liberty minded people. There's a bunch of them in the state legislature, but they're not willing to step out of line and propose this kind of radical stuff. You're right. Um, but we are making progress. I mean, we have our yeah. first state uh, senator, state senator. Yeah. Um, you know, that's a free stater. So, you know, we're making progress. It's 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 uh, it takes time. It's a it's it's a slow thing. But um, we do have disproportionate disproportionate representation. Uh, in the state because our people who move here are going to be more active than the local population. They're going to speak out more. They're going to run more. And, you know, the more people you got up and running for for office, the more more of your people are going to get elected. Yeah. And uh, and we can we can accelerate it by accelerating the number of movers. Absolutely. And that's the key aspect to this and, and we've i think we've done that i mean I, I mean in some respects or at least it's occurred in some respects over the last two two or three years 
Um, in you know, ever, ever since COVID, the number of movers have we've had record numbers of movers. So we've had record numbers of new reps uh, or additional reps, mm-hmm. right? Positions yeah. keeps going up. Yeah, it keeps, keeps going, going up. up. So it's it, it's it's everything's going in the right direction. Yeah, it's going in the right direction, and um, it'll it'll still take time. Um, I, I think we're still probably a good, I don't know, maybe five to eight years before we can really have yeah. real. I hate to use the word power, but real power you know yeah i mean before the we get 200 free staters it's probably going to take some you know another decade yeah right? yeah it's, it's gonna take time but we're gonna get to a point where we can actually pass 200 free state elect uh state house we're gonna we're gonna get to a point where we can actually pass some of this seemingly crazy proposals you know like getting rid of the state police or you know we'll mm-hmm. get there it's just it's probably going to be a decade yep gotta have more people because those ideas have to not seem as crazy yeah. Before they're ever going to get the, the traction amongst the average person. Let's go to the phones here. Speaking of crazy, Sarah is on the line in New Mexico. Go ahead. Oh, yes. I yes. want to tell you, did you know, you know, George Nori, he's an ascended master. He What's just, that? He just came here on earth to teach other people. And, Does and he claim that or is that what you believe about him? Well, that's what I believe about him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, because how do you I know mean, he's not just a talk show host who puts a bunch of crazy kooks on the air? Well, because I was told that he's a breatharian. See, he had a show about breatharians. Yeah, and why don't you describe the, what that is for our listeners that don't know? Okay, so they're ascended masters. So then they don't have to eat. They don't never get tired, mm-hmm. and uh, they're they're pretty much from the other side. They're graduates. <laughs> So when they come here, they are like breatharians. They just survive on air. Yeah. And and then just they just eat. And then the breatharians. Do you actually believe? Say, you actually believe that? Yes, I do believe it. Yeah. Have you ever met one of they, them? No, I never. I never have. But mm-hmm. I heard stories about these breatharians. Like. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. We I, had one of them on the air once. I mean, why? Why do you believe it? Why do, I, why do I believe it? Because uh, when they're graduates, when they come down here just to teach, um, that's how they are. They don't they don't get tired. They don't have to really eat. Um, that didn't answer they, the question. What what's the question? I mean, well, well you have to listen first to before you understand what the question is. Why don't you ask it yeah. a second time, um, Chris? So why do you believe what what they're telling you? Right, like. Well, I mean, it makes sense. No, it know? doesn't because make sense. How does it make sense? Well, it does make sense that, let, let's say, I was told that Mother Teresa, she's ascended. So when she comes back, uh, she has a special privileges to come down as a teacher. Okay. And when she does, Let's she focus does. on one thing at a time here. I don't want to talk about Mother Teresa and what you believe about her. You said it makes sense. The idea that someone can live off of air. Please explain why that makes sense. Well, because you know, if God wants it to be something, then so it is. So they. Well, it looks um, to me like God uh, gave us bodies that require calories to operate, and in order to give it calories, you have to put food in your belly. In order for the body to have the fuel that it needs to continue operating. Now, I'll give you this, Sarah. Uh, Sarah, I'll give you this. There are definitely some hard-to-explain phenomena out there, right? So there are some people 
who have, let's call them masters, who are able to do a, a level of meditation where they essentially can kind of shut themselves down, right? Lower their heart right. rate, uh, and they don't need to feed as often. In fact, there are some people that have gone for you know many days without uh, without moving, without without eating, and like shocking, like they've been observed by science and things like that. There's pre- pretty tough to understand things. Right. Well, that's but, what reducing and, and the number of calories that you need. Food. Correct. Not, They're reducing. Not eliminating. Right. I mean, so well, that's not to say those aren't can... really impressive feats. I mean, they are definitely impressive feats. I mean, I don't, for me, going five hours without eating is, uh, is a long time, right? <laughs> right? To go for longer than that is pretty impressive. But to suggest that somebody can actually live a life to go to work, to get up in the morning, to go for a run outside or a walk or whatever, and then come home or whatever, and then not have something to fuel their body's needs is absolutely absurd. Well, Why would you believe that? Well, because that's what they claim, that they their blood constitution is gold. <laughs> that it's not ours is iron. Sarah, there's a rule that says, I don't know who made it up, but extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. When someone makes a claim, the first thing you ought to do is say, oh, that's interesting. Prove it. Back it up. Sarah, I got a question for you. If I told you I was an elephant, would you believe me? And if not, why not? You are a what? What did you say? If you're an elephant? If If I told you that I was an elephant, would you believe me? And if not, why not? No. No, because I because uh, elephants don't talk and reason as much as you do. But these ascended masters have uh, been on Earth many several times, and when they manifest, they act like he never gets tired. You know, everybody kept, don't you ever get tired? Don't you ever sleep? And he's not supposed to say, "I'm an ascended master. My my gold has a, a gold content. I don't have to eat." He doesn't brag about it. It would be he pretty easy, it. Sarah, if somebody had gold running through their veins to simply go into a facility and have a scientist withdraw the blood from their veins and then test it and prove that there's actual gold running through their veins. But I suspect but you, that you, you, can't pro, uh, you can't point us to any such study. Look, okay, they're not here to do, like, this uh, supermania studies or stuff. They're here to help other people. Well, that's a load them. of garbage because there are people who are willing to be studied. Uh, I will submit to you the Iceman. His name is Wim Hof, W-I-M-H-O-F. I believe he's from Norway or one of the Scandinavian countries. And he's known as the Iceman because he goes and he will submerge himself in freezing cold ice baths. And, for how long? And for a long time. And he can actually keep his core body temperature steady. Whereas the average person, if they were to submerge themselves in the ice bath, their core temperature is going to drop, right? Like if your core oh, temperature yeah. drops too much, you will die. You get hypothermia, things like that. He's able to, through the power of his mind, actually do this and his intention. And he's welcomed science. He's encouraged science and has worked with scientists to study him. And they put him through he, They put him through the ringer. It's absolutely fascinating the level of uh, you know intensity that you can bring through your mind work. So there's some really cool stuff that goes on out there, but I really appreciate people like Wim Hof who are willing to work with science to prove that he's for real. Thank you, Sarah, for the call. We'll see you tomorrow. This is Mark Edge with Free Talk Live. Mark Warden with PorcupineRealEstate.com is one of the best real estate agents I've ever worked with. 
I've been through about two dozen real estate transactions in my life, and I feel like I know what I'm doing, but there's always the things that you don't know that you don't know. Mark Warden with PorcupineRealEstate.com found a problem with the house that I was buying that ultimately saved me $65,000. He's a consummate professional, holds his people to his own high standards, and I would unequivocally recommend him for any real estate purchase in New Hampshire. Don't sell yourself short. Contact PorcupineRealEstate.com.